Mocknav is an Irish word encompassing reflection, contemplation, meditation, and thought. Mocknav 100 is an invitation from the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, for us all to join him in reflecting on those seminal events of just 100 years ago on this island and further afield, their causes, their consequences, and the influence they've had and may still be having on our history. As has been reflected already in this Mocknav 100 series of seminars, history can be a contested and emotive subject. It is often viewed very differently depending on one's nationality, sense of identity, tradition or background. History can be selectively recalled, forgotten or ignored. And it has often been used as a means of justifying contemporary action or indeed inaction. A central motivation for President Higgins in bringing us this Mocknav 100 series is to provide a space where through a fuller and more inclusive understanding of our shared past, we might acknowledge its complexity and contradictions, and perhaps free ourselves from its capacity to inhibit our consideration of options for a better shared future. Already in this Mocknav series, we've considered the nature of commemoration itself, the nature of empire a century ago. We've had a special Mocknav seminar which focused on issues of social class, land, and the role of women. And I should mention that the proceedings of those first three Mocknav 100 seminars have been published in book form. It's an e-book and free of charge, and it can be downloaded from the website president.ie. The fourth Mocknav seminar was entitled Settlement, Schisms, and Civil Strife. It covered the events precipitated just a century ago by the treaty, the split, and the civil war. This Mocknav 100 seminar five is focused on the two states which emerged after the partitioning of Ireland just a century ago. Partition transformed Ireland. Not that Ireland in 1922 was that different to what it had been in, say, 1919. The same players were playing, but partition resulted just a century ago in an island of two states. It divided north and south between six counties in the north, Northern Ireland, and 26 counties in the south, then Irish Free State. This seminar five is entitled Constitutional, Institutional, and Ideological Foundations, Complexity and Contestation. And these are indeed complex foundations which we will be considering in this seminar. And of course, these arrangements were and remain contested, as we will undoubtedly hear in these proceedings. Our keynote speaker is Professor Brendan O'Leary. His paper has been circulated in advance to our other speakers, and they will respond from their perspectives. Dr. Henry Patterson will speak on class, state, and identity from a northern perspective. Professor Lindsay Erner Byrne is Professor of Gender History at UCC. Dr. Teresa Reedy, as a political scientist, will comment on how partition has impacted on who was elected and on what agendas in the century since partition. The President will then offer his own response. And we will conclude with a roundtable discussion between all participants and the invited audience. I now invite President Michael D. Higgins to welcome the participants to this Mocknav 100, Session 5. In today's seminar, Machna 5, we consider the constitutional, institutional, and ideological foundations of the emerging Irish state a century ago. We do so respecting its complexity and its inevitable aspects of contestation. This challenging period of our history demands such an approach, one that allows for multiple narratives and alternative versions of events that are best considered within a framework of narrative hospitality. 
the events of the period 1922 to 1926 are, may I suggest, among the most important in modern Irish history. Such events are important events as to the form in which they transpired and their consequences that soon became all too apparent, but also in terms of what they revealed to us of the assumptions they carried as to independence, the balance between parliamentary possibilities and military action, the hold of empires, and the force of an inherited dream of independence. In reflecting on this period, we must remember difference in experiences on the island of Ireland. There was a huge difference beyond geography between those who had within empire experienced the benefits of the Industrial Revolution and its class conflicts, and those others struggling for survival, for land. To understanding the period, we are fortunate to have available to us now a rich vein of new scholarship from new and often neglected perspectives, work that can be added to the seminal work of Irish and American scholars in leaner times of publication. In preparing my own contribution for today, I have drawn on the work of some of these scholars, including Elaine Quillinan's work on the diaries of Joseph Campbell, as well as new scholarship from Terence Stooley and Shivra Aiken. Mokhnov 100 is an initiative I have undertaken as Uktrona Heron, building on previous work, seeking to enable reflections on the wider context of events, including the War of Independence, Civil War, and Partition. I have invited leading scholars with diverse perspectives to share their insights on the context and events of that formative period of a century ago, and to make a reflection on the nature of the act of commemoration itself. My motivation in convening Mokhnev 100 is to address the complexity of the period, to engage in the exploration of motivations rather than the assertion of conclusions. Our efforts are aimed at understanding, and may I suggest that such efforts in relation to the past may assist us in addressing our present complexities and our future challenges on this island. May I thank Dr. John Bowman for agreeing to chair these seminars and for the excellent job he has done throughout, and Professor Garrod O'Tuhig for his ongoing invaluable advice and assistance. May I thank, too, those who agreed to participate in today's Mockner 5 seminar by providing original papers on various aspects of this period under examination, and we are fortunate to have with us such distinguished scholars. Today's principal address will be provided by Professor Brendan O'Leary of the University of Pennsylvania. Responses will be made by Professor Henry Patterson of the University of Ulster, Professor Lindsay Amerbarn of University College Cork, and Dr. Theresa Reedy, also of University College Cork. My own address will be entitled Interpreting the Period 1922 to 1926 in Irish History, Influences and Consequences. Just a word on our previous seminars. Our inaugural seminar held in December 2020 examined the nature and concept of commemoration itself in the context of today and of the national and global events of a century ago. Speakers included Professor Kieran Benson, Anne Dolan, Michael Laffin, Noah Pearson, and myself. And together we set out our intentions for what we are hoping to achieve from this series. 
In February of last year, I hosted a second seminar which focused on empire, imperial attitudes and responses as they related to circumstances in Ireland. The main reflection was given by Professor John Horne with responses from Professor Eunan O'Halpin, Dr. Mary Coleman, Professor Alvin Jackson, Dr. Neve Gallagher and myself. The third Martin of 100 seminar took place in May last year and was entitled Recovering Reimagined Futures. This seminar focused on issues of land, social class, gender, and the sources of violence. And speakers included Dr. Margaret Callaghan, Ms. Katrina Crow, Dr. John Cunningham, Dr. Katrina Clear, Professor Linda Connolly, and myself. The fourth seminar took place in November last year, focusing on the truce, the treaty, and partition. It saw Professor Dermot Ferreter of University College Dublin provide the principal address, and respondents in addition to myself included Professors Mary Daly and Margaret Kelleher, both of University College Dublin, Dr. Dahio Coron of Dublin City University, and Professor Falcon McGarry of Queen's University Belfast, all of whom delivered excellent responses. I hope that you find today's penultimate seminar thought-provoking, perhaps even challenging, and above all, a reminder of the importance of examining the history of this period through an ethical prism, and one that takes into account the view from below. Falterov, Iliuk, Buenchan of Hassan Seminar. For such a small part of the world's political map, Northern Ireland has certainly generated an enormous political literature, some thousands of books and academic papers. Brendan O'Leary is responsible for 29 books, of which he is author, co-author, or editor. His latest title, three volumes in fact, from Oxford University Press, is entitled A Treatise on Northern Ireland. Volume 1, Colonialism. Volume 2, Control. And the third volume, Consociation and Confederalism. This has won wide acclaim, won the 2020 Donnelly Prize of the American Conference of Irish Studies, and his next book, presumably shorter, Making Sense of a United Ireland will be published by Penguin this coming September. He is Lauder Professor of Politics at the University of Pennsylvania. Brendan O'Leary. Fellow citizens, three new political entities emerged on this island in 1922. The Irish Free State, Northern Ireland, and sometimes overlooked, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Two new states materialized. Northern Ireland was not one of them, though many have suggested otherwise, including James Craig, who boasted of a Protestant state in repost to those who had allegedly boasted of a Catholic one. Northern Ireland has never met any formal definition of a state, not Hegel's, not Marx's, not Max Weber's, nor that of any other German eminence, nor has it ever met any standard legal definitions. Legislated through the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, Northern Ireland was neither domestically nor externally sovereign and had never had constituent power. Differently put, it cannot make its constitution on its own. Intermittently, it has been a devolved entity with delegated powers, powers that have been revoked in favor of direct rule and that may be revoked again. In terms, as lawyers say, it has never been a state in a federation. Its powers could always be revoked. Throughout its existence, Northern Ireland has been subject to the overriding sovereignty of the Westminster Parliament, and still is, 
even though that parliament repealed Section 75 of the Government of Ireland Act in 1998. The Suspension Act of 2000, passed and implemented without the approval of the Government of Ireland, is a recent illustration of this sovereign override. On April the 30th, 2021, a BBC reporter told us that a panel of historians set up to advise the government on Northern Ireland's centenary has settled on the 3rd of May as the birth date of the state. Admittedly, that must be the sole occasion on which a panel addressing a controversial topic in and over Northern Ireland has made an agreement to time, albeit with three days to go. The panel erred, however, if it thought it was naming the birth date of a state called Northern Ireland. The reporter mentioned that seven other birth dates had been considered. My own writing, with some disposition toward mercy, has considered four plausible birthdays. December the 23rd, 1920, when the Government of Ireland Act was ratified. May the 3rd, 1920, when it entered into force. June the 22nd, 1921, when the Belfast Parliament was opened. And lastly, the occasion Unionists are inclined to forget, 8th of December 1922. That was when the Belfast Parliament voted to secede from the Irish Free State, into which it had been legally put by the treaty signed in 1921. That treaty was not ratified by the King in Parliament until late 1922, after the final draft of the Constitution of the Irish Free State had been ratified. The previous version had been rejected by the British Cabinet as incompatible with the Treaty of 1921, a rejection that made the war of green against green, the Irish Civil War, more likely. Any place with four or more birthdays is unlikely to be the subject of an agreed celebration or commemoration, and so it has proved. But one factual observation flows from the fourth birthday. If the people of both jurisdictions vote in future with concurrent majorities to create a sovereign united Ireland, then they would accomplish reunification, not merely unification. If Northern Ireland had a constitution before the Good Friday Agreement, it was the Government of Ireland Act, originally drafted to create two devolved parliaments within the Union, with continuing Westminster sovereignty, and with continuing but reduced Irish representation in the House of Commons. The liberal imperialist and conservative solution to Irish self-determination was to invent two Irelands, Northern and Southern, with a geographic insouciance that still rankles, especially if you come from Donegal. Unionist elites decisively shaped the final territorial definition of Northern Ireland, insisting on six counties, thereby betraying their co-ethnics in Donegal, Cavan, and Monaghan. They did not, however, significantly debate or reflect. They did not engage in an act of Marnive on what constitutional forms Northern Ireland should have. In practice, they resented inconvenient deviations from the Westminster mothership and would soon rectify them. No evidence exists of serious reflection within the Ulster Unionist Party of the 1920s regarding what constitutional forms would best win the consent of the newly created political minority in Northern Ireland, the nationalists who saw themselves as part of an all-island majority and the other overlapping minority, cultural Catholics. Rather, the Ulster Unionist Party focused on control, preventing or putting down Republican rebellion organizing unionists and disorganizing northern nationalists 
and Republicans, who were, admittedly, doing a thorough job of disorganizing themselves. Unionist elites did not, uh, excuse me, unionist elites did care about local fiscal burdens and benefits. Throughout the 1920s, Craig worked successfully to increase subsidies from the London Treasury, and thereby to bypass Lloyd George's fiscal provisos. Had he not done so, Northern Ireland might have gone bankrupt in the 1930s, like Newfoundland. The British compromise was to give home rule to those who claimed they did not want it, after they had refused or postponed it for those who had wanted. As it happened, however, unionists preferred local home rule to its alternatives, but not home rule within the Irish Free State. They cared about who ruled at home. The Ulster Unionist Party would make Northern Ireland as culturally British as possible. They abolished proportional representation in local government almost immediately to strengthen the case against revisions of the new border. Within the decade, proportional representation was abolished for elections to the Stormont Parliament being built in Belfast's eastern suburbs. Twice, London governments chose not to prevent the abolition of proportional representation. The Ulster Unionist Party deliberately sought to polarize local politics on the national question, curiously called the constitutional question by all sides, thereby making it easier for the party to act as a pan-Protestant alliance of classes and sects. The adversarial politics of the Westminster parliamentary model may be suited to homogeneous societies if two major parties compete for the moderate median voter. But it has always been a deeply unsuited model to places rent by divisions over national, ethnic, and religious questions, as was already apparent as the Union of Great Britain and Ireland began to democratize significantly after 1884. Reverting to winner-takes-all in single-member districts in Belfast helped the Ulster Unionist Party to mar marginalize Protestant socialists, those who had been deemed rotten prods during the expulsion of Catholics from Belfast's shipyards. It also helped keep loyalist ultras generally within the folds of the dominant party. Republicans and Northern nationalists were given no reasons to abandon abstentionism. Among other securities for Southern Protestants, STVPR had been introduced for Irish local government elections in 1920 and was then put into the Government of Ireland Act of that same year. STV would stay in the South, championed by Arthur Griffith and incorporated in both the Constitution of the Irish Free State and its replacement. Subsequent efforts by Fianna Fáil governments to replace STVPR with winner-takes-all were defeated in referendums in 1959 and 1968. These institutional decisions had consequences. Fianna Fáil, while the largest party, always faced prospects of not being able to form a government. The Ulster Unionist Party did not, though it was constantly anxious that it might lose. It dealt with the anxiety by making losing highly improbable. STVPR was not restored in the North until 1973. In the interim, the Ulster Unionist Party won all general elections held to the Belfast and London parliaments. No alternation in government ever took place. Two prime ministers, Craig and Brooke, served for 20 years each. Death in office may have been the most common means of changing cabinet ministers. There was no incentive to attract Catholic, let alone nationalist votes. 
the party did not debate Catholic membership until the late 1950s. Abuse of power was plentiful, especially where its exercise would further entrench the party. All the pathologies of the Ulster Unionist Party's dominance were aggravated by the abolition of PR, namely partisan control of the police and its B Special Reserves, gerrymandering, making elections into censuses of the loyal, direct and indirect discrimination against Catholics, nationalists and Republicans in employment, housing allocation and the building and siting of infrastructure in the maintenance of an unreformed local government franchise and the weakness of parliamentary opposition. Failure to protect the securities they had included in the Home Rule Acts typified Westminster's negligent oversight. Northern Ireland has remarkably been the subject of five major treaties since its creation. The founding treaty, amended by the Government of Ireland Act, putting Northern Ireland into the Irish Free State while allowing it to secede back into the UK, subject to two provisos, a boundary commission, which would, it seemed, create a fairer border, and an obligation on Northern Ireland to pay its full fiscal contributions, then known as imperial contributions. Neither proviso was fulfilled. Secondly, the Treaty of 1925 amended the foundational treaty, buried the Boundary Commission and the Council of Ireland, though the latter idea would be resurrected and rejected in the making and defeat of the Sunningdale Agreement in 1973 and 1974. Third, the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985 created the Intergovernmental Conference, pledged the further reform of Northern Ireland in return for Irish security cooperation and incentivized power-sharing devolution. The latter was not agreed, however, until fourth, the British-Irish Agreement of 10th of April 1998, which promised to safeguard and implement the three-stranded power-sharing settlement reached in multi-party talks in Belfast. Last and most recent is the Ireland-Northern Ireland Protocol, an integral part of the UK's withdrawal agreement of 2020 with the European Union, intended to preserve the gains of the 1998 agreement. The Government of Ireland was, was a party to just one of these treaties, that of 1925, but not as a state. The Good Friday or Belfast Agreement, the latter name is preferred by those who emphasize where it was signed rather than the day it was made, addressed how a Northern Ireland government would be composed, at least th this side of a reunified Ireland. And it was agreed by double referendums, not just in the North, and negotiated and ratified under the supervision and with the exhortation of the two sovereign governments. Being the subject of five significant international treaties suggests that sustained insecurity describes Northern Ireland's constitutional trajectory, for which many are jointly culpable, not least unionist leaders. Even the place's name has never been fully agreed. Unionists would have preferred to call it Ulster, taking the name of the whole for the larger portion. They lobbied for that name change in 1937 when the name of the Irish state was changed, and in 1949 when the Republic was redeclared. London governments refused the name change, but did not object to the Royal Ulster Constabulary or later to the Ulster Defence Regiment. To this day, most loyalist militia have Ulster in their titles, not Northern Ireland. For traditional Irish nationalists, the place remains the north of Ireland. For traditional Republicans, the six counties. 
A last measure of Northern Ireland's constitutional insecurity may be taken from Richard Humphrey's very useful edition of key documents called Reconciling Ireland, 50 Years of British-Irish Agreements. His text includes 40 agreements made between 1973 and 2020, but not the recent protocol to which the UK and Ireland are parties, Ireland through the European Union. We may expect further such agreements before future referendums decide the status of Northern Ireland. In the long story of British direct rule between 1972 and 1998 that I cannot examine here, the Government of Ireland Act was progressively amended or extinguished by British governments until it was replaced by the 1998 agreement. Unlike previous power sharing initiatives, the Good Friday Agreement eventually appeared to stabilize between 27 and 2017 after the St Andrews Agreement led to minor adjustments of its content. For the first time, constitutional arrangements enjoyed legitimacy throughout the island, as well as within and across Northern Ireland. The parties to the 1998 agreement included Republicans as well as Loyalists. They accepted consociational arrangements, that is, power sharing between communities and parties based on the principles of parity, proportionality, autonomy, and veto rights on devolved matters. I have reviewed these in detail elsewhere, generally favorably. However, these arrangements are not constitutionalized as that term is understood elsewhere. They're partly in what the UK calls a constitutional statute, the Northern Ireland Act of 1998, as modified by subsequent legislation, notably the St. Andrews Agreement. All that does, however, is to protect the Good Friday Agreement against implied repeal. There are also provisions in the text agreed by the parties in 1998 that are not incorporated into UK domestic law. These include the recognition of the right of the people of Ireland, North and South, respectively, to exercise their right of self-determination to create a sovereign United Ireland or to maintain the Union and to do so without external impediment, and not least, the obligation of rigorous impartiality in administration by the incumbent sovereign government. Lastly, they are protected by two treaties, one between the UK and Ireland, and now one between the EU and the UK. The permanent constitutional trouble, admittedly not the only one, is that Westminster's sovereignty hangs like a sword of Damocles over all these arrangements. No Westminster Parliament can bind its successor. Each, free, each fresh UK government may modify these and any other constitutional arrangements, if it so chooses, provided it can pass the relevant laws. Simply put, a binding treaty with a parliament that allows itself easily to modify or repudiate treaties deeply impairs the UK's capacity to make a credible commitment to foreign governments, including Ireland's. Equally, that same parliament cannot make solemn internal constitutional pledges to nationalists, unionists, or others. What Westminster gives, Westminster may take away by the same means. The constant lobbying of the Westminster government of the day to implement the 1998 agreement, or not, or to implement the protocol, or not, reflects this condition of permanent constitutional insecurity. Perfidious Albion, I like to say, is a constitutional condition, not a national character trait. 
No anglophobia is required for this diagnosis or intended. No governing arrangements or platform of rights in any part of the union is institutionally entrenched against a simple majority in the House of Commons and the Lords, including the Acts of Union, as recently advertised by Justice Adrian Coulton's eloquent essay in constitutional law that was upheld by the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal in March 2022. So long as parliamentary sovereignty remains the UK's Grundnorm, the credible entrenchment of rights and procedures, even when they're sincerely supported by London ministers, cannot be offered to the Scots or the Welsh, let alone the three designations of Northern Irish. And as observed throughout this island, the current Conservative government feels free, in principle, to repudiate, allegedly in a very specific and limited way, treaties which it has very recently signed. Northern Ireland was a constitutional failure before 1998, an example of how the Westminster model may be, may be abused by a dominant party based on a dominant nationality, ethnicity, or religious community. Its replacement by a consociational devolved settlement with institutionalized north-south and east-west relations is a very distinct improvement. But that settlement has proven brittle, especially without sustained British and Irish cooperation and oversight. The settlement was not made by and has never been fully owned by leading English conservatives, with the notably honorable exceptions of Christopher Patton and John Major. The fragility of the settlement has been exposed by the Johnson administration's decision to choose a hard exit from the EU for Great Britain, while in bad faith signing a protocol to address the Brexiteers' afterthought, Northern Ireland. Whether the 1998 settlement endures remains to be seen. If it does, it will ease a more benign path towards reunification. The Irish Free State, by contrast to Northern Ireland, was a state and became a free state. Statehood was in its founding title, but Westminster's lawyers sought, unsuccessfully, to keep it constrained by the narrowest construal of the treaty. The domestic sovereignty of the Irish Free State was mostly clear at the outset, albeit constrained by the articles of, of the treaty ratified by Doyle Aaron and the Westminster Parliament in 1922. The Free State immediately had the treaty-making powers of Canada, and by 1923, against the wishes of His Majesty's government, it was recognized by the League of Nations, of which it would become a member in good standing. By 1931, Westminster had renounced the right to legislate for any dominion, the designation through which British drafters of the treaty had hoped to confine the sovereignty of the Irish Free State. Within 15 years, however, most of the constitutional articles, including most of those in the treaty that had been imposed against the first preferences of the Irish negotiators, were gone. Successive constitutional amendments by Coman Nigel, our Fianna Fáil-led governments, were not contested or were acquiesced in by London governments. The Irish of the Irish Free State adopted Bunriacht na Éireann by referendum in 1937. Literally, that is the fundamental or basic law of Ireland, but officially it is translated as the Constitution of Ireland. Unlike the Free State Constitution, the Bunriacht was entirely made in sovereign Ireland and ratified by its sovereign people alone, through their own parliament and by a referendum. 
it thereby achieved a widespread standing that its predecessor had never attained, because both the treaty and London's rejection of the official first draft of the constitution of the Irish Free State were accompanied by a British threat to renew war. The following year, 1938, Neville Chamberlain's government, on the advice of his senior military officers, relinquished the so-called treaty ports, leaving the government of Ireland fully sovereign over its territory. The so-called economic war was settled at the same time in de Valera's and Ireland's favor. So by 1939, the state named Ireland in the English language had become fully externally sovereign, demonstrated through its subsequent neutrality throughout World War II. In all but name, it had become a republic again, with an elected president described as taking precedence over all other persons in the state. That would be you, Bukhtaran. <laughs> the outstanding features of the treaty, contested by nationalists of all hues, Northern Ireland's existence, was tactically, but not tactfully, addressed in Articles 2 and 3 of the Bunry Act. These claimed the whole island as Ireland's national territory, but confined the jurisdiction of the Oireachtas to the territory of Sarstadt Éireann. Seen as aggressively irredentist by Unionists, these articles were qualified by Article 29 of the Constitution, which obliged Ireland to obey international law and to settle territorial disputes peaceably. They deliberately left open the possibility that Northern Ireland could be transferred to Ireland by an agreement between Great Britain and Ireland without the consent of Northern Ireland's parliament or a majority of its people. After 1937, Irish governments effectively did not recognize Northern Ireland, silently repudiating the agreement of 1925. Irish sovereignty was prioritized ahead of detente with the Northern government. Non-recognition was fully reciprocated by the government of Northern Ireland's cultural and ideological distance from de Valera's Ireland, which it berated for betray betraying the treaty, one that the Ulster Unionist government had not recognized at the time. We also now know that in June 1940, Craig wrote to Churchill recommending that Scottish and Welsh regiments should be sent to topple the regime in Dublin and to install a British military governor. On this occasion, Churchill did not agree with Craig. Mutual non-recognition persisted. The Prime Ministers of Ireland and Northern Ireland did not meet between 1925 and 1965. The UK did not recognize Ireland by its official name until 1998. Ireland did not fully recognize Northern Ireland by its name until it ratified the British-Irish Agreement and modified Articles 2 and 3 in 1999 to specify mutual consent for reunification. Disputes over names and refusing to recognize one another's preferred names feature in the base currency of deep national and ethnic conflict. The constitution of the Irish Free State was replaced for two reasons. One was to complete the implementation of de Valera's document number two, his alternative to the 1921 treaty that had been rejected both by the British and by a majority of his fellow Sinn Féin cabinet members and a majority of the revolutionary Doyle Aaron. The other reason was that the constitution of the Irish Free State had become too British, but not in any monarchical sense. Unexpectedly, each article could be amended by a simple majority of the Oireachtas. That is to say, the Oireachtas became sovereign in the way that the Westminster Parliament is sovereign. 
Legally, that development was allowed to happen through the exploitation of a badly drafted, albeit misinterpreted, Article 50. What, it is, what is it about Articles numbered 50? In that article, the entrenchment of the Constitution had been postponed for eight years, initially to enable minor corrective amendments by ordinary legislation. But it was then extended for 16 years through arguably invalid amendment of the relevant amending provision. Had the planned entrenchment occurred, then a referendum passed by a qualified majority would have been required to ratify constitutional amendments. Legally, the de, the de facto shift to Oireachtas sovereignty was also enabled by a curious court judgment by Judge O'Connor in a case in 1924. The judge held that retrospective legislation validating the military courts that had been used to try militant republicans should be treated as a constitutional amendment, even though the act in question had not been brought forward explicitly as such. Effectively, this decision returned the Irish Free State to the British judicial doctrine of implied repeal. As a result of this decision and subsequent cases, the Constitution could be amended by ordinary legislation without specifying the provisions to be amended and without even specifying any intention to amend the Constitution. The Command Nagel government also abolished the article enabling a popular initiative to launch a referendum because Fianna Foyle began to mobilize to hold one targeted against the treaty. Despite its eventual failure, the Irish Free State Constitution nevertheless deserves some backward glances of approval, but not because of its unstable compromise between a democratic and republican ethos and British monarchical symbolism, but rather because of its innovative ambitions and its good faith intent to accommodate Irish Protestants and Unionists, including Ulster Protestants. The innovative ambitions included the desire to entrench citizen not parliamentary sovereignty, by making the people sovereign and by requiring referendums to change the constitution, and the desire to establish judicial review to ensure that governments did not breach the people's rights. The accommodationist ethos was present not just in the determination to keep SDVPR as a safeguard for Protestants throughout the island, but in the decision to establish a Senate in which Protestants would be significantly overrepresented a goal lost when the Senate became party politicized. Last but not least, all of the three internal drafts of the Constitution of the Irish Free State obliged a request from Michael Collins regarding the North. Article 44 of the final Constitution had the following provision. The Oireachtas may create subordinate legislatures with such powers as may be decided by law. Collins had wanted a mechanism readily available to incorporate a devolved Northern Ireland within a reunited Irish Free State. Fifteen years later, Eamon de Valera kept open the option for subordinate legislatures. Article 15 of the Punri Act provides that the sole and exclusive power for making laws for the state is hereby vested in the Oireachtas. No other legislative authority has power to make laws for the state. But then it says, Provision may, however, be made, may be made by law for the creation or recognition of subordinate legislatures and for the powers and functions of these legislatures. There's a clear difference between the two constitutions. Under Ireland's current constitution, 
a law may be passed by the Oireachtas to recognize an existing legislature as subordinate. At the time, this text allowed for the recognition of the Northern Ireland Parliament, which had been running for some 16 years when Bunriachna Éireann was ratified. The same clause could, however, be used to recognize the current Northern Ireland Assembly as a subordinate legislature. De Valera's constitution has proved robust and flexible, surprising many. It has become a constitution as ordinarily understood. The Oireachtas is not sovereign. The constitution protects popular sovereignty. Referendums are required to amend the constitution. Judicial review and presidential reference for judicial review have helped protect constitutional and human rights, both those that are explicit and those Americans call unenumerated. The Constitution has been sufficiently flexible to allow Articles 2 and 3 to be amended to reflect the principle of concurrent consent for Irish reunification, and to enable amendments, starting with the modification of Article 44 on religion, that reflect the country's thoroughgoing secularization, as well as its integration into the European Confederation. It is sufficiently flexible to allow for two different models of future reunification one with the continuing Northern Ireland Assembly, and one in which Northern Ireland is dissolved. It must, however, be radically amended or replaced if federation becomes the chosen model of, reu of reunification, an unlikely possibility, I believe. The Constitution's preamble, however, is not fit for purpose. It reads as sectarian whatever the drafting intent. Likewise, the provisions on declarations for officeholders, including the President's, need to be fully secularized. Its drafting spirit was patriarchal and regressive regarding women's rights. A full scan and deliberation over the Constitution, particularly its language provisions, is minimally necessary before the momentous and galvanizing prospects of reunification referendums, Kirka 2030. Comprehensive replacement, however, may not be required unless the model of reunification chosen is based on holding a constitutional convention elected by the entire people of the island. The other state created in 1922, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, is sovereign over Northern Ireland. It is sometimes inaccurately referred to as the British state in Northern Ireland because there is no good adjectival form for UK. Ukania and Ukanian advanced by Tom Nairn, have no extensive followers. In 1922, the territorially reconstructed United Kingdom lost more of its sovereign territory, 22%, than Germany had at Versailles, 13%, a vivid testament to the failure to incorporate Ireland into British nation building. This downsizing under the pressure of ballots and armed insurrection caused no significant political aftershock within Great Britain. No institutional transformation occurred akin to France's reconstruction during withdrawal from Algeria. Any prospects of home rule all around or federalizing the UK died, surviving only in the round table group, a pan-dominion or a set of Commonwealth imperialists led by Lionel Curtis, who had been an advisor to Lord George during the making of the treaty and after. From the perspective of British political elites, especially the Conservatives, downsizing from Ireland, north and south, was almost a complete success. Ireland no longer sent over 100 MPs to the House of Commons. 
tiresome Irish questions were removed from the Commons, aided by a Speaker's Convention blocking parliamentary questions and discussions on matters devolved to Northern Ireland. The Tories could also count on 10 to 12 UUP MPs at Westminster to take the Conservative whip until 1972, a phenomenon which concentrated Harold Wilson's mind when Labour won a House of Commons majority of four seats in 1964. Managing Ireland became largely a question of international relations, whereas Northern Ireland was delegated to a small number of officials in the Treasury and the Home Office. The removal of the Irish question from the Commons also unexpectedly facilitated the growth of Labour and the Conservatives at the expense of the Liberals. Class is the basis of British party politics. All else is embellishment and detail. So wrote a professor of politics in 1967. That illusion was easier to believe after 1945 and before the duopoly of Labour and Conservatives began to break down in the mid-1970s. At least Scotland and Wales were part of the embellishment and detail. Northern Ireland was not. It was not treated as part of British party politics. Its details did not fit class politics, even though its dominant party represented conservative British Protestant culture in nearly fossilized forms. Intellectual neglect within the British Academy mirrored the political neglect in Westminster and Whitehall and in the press and civil society. British imperial elites also quickly judged that partitioning Ireland had been a success, whence the confidence with which some of their officials advanced partition as a solution for mandate Palestine and so-called British India. After 1918 and 1945, the victors of two world wars saw no reason to replace their constitution, essentially the English constitution, with its core doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty. Later, the not-so-post-imperial political elite of Greater England found European integration, especially the European Union, a profound challenge. There they encountered a constitutionalized confederation in the making, rather than an international organization to be treated a la carte. We all know how that tension ended, or at least appears to have ended. Grafting the English Constitution onto the European Confederation eventually did not work. Although, ironically, the divorce took place after a referendum intended to resolve intra-elite disagreement among the Conservatives. Twenty years ago, it had not been absurd to imagine the UK evolving in an informally quasi-federal manner within a confederalizing Europe. That vista, however, has gone like the snows of yesteryear. Until England, and I mean England, constitutionalizes in a conventional manner by removing sovereignty from its imperious parliament, it will remain an awkward partner to its domestic neighbors and its sovereign neighbors. Awkward is a polite adjective. Indeed, the dissolution of the two unions, that of Great Britain and that of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, may occur before the English determined to join the club of genuinely constitutionalized democracies. The rules for the dissolution of the union with Northern Ireland are agreed in a treaty. The rules for the other union are not. The current Conservative Prime Minister reserves the right to determine when the people of Scotland may next decide on their self-determination. Finally, 
The, the late John Kenneth Galbraith always said you should say finally to give hope to your audience. Uh, finally, we must learn from our constitutional experiences. 1922 was a bloody year throughout most of the island. Both emergent jurisdictions experienced civil war. Both initial constitutional orders were failures by the evaluative standards of constitutionality I have used here. We still live with the consequences. The compromises of 1937 and 1998 did not definitively settle the constitutional orders of the South and the North. The terms and conditions for future referendums on the possibility of reunification are specified in the 1998 agreement, though not with the detail many would like to see. They're also protected by two treaties. However, adequate constitutional preparation for the possibility of the referendums has not begun. The nature of the UK state and Northern Ireland's lack of statehood puts a particular onus on the Irish state to prepare for the possibility of reunification. The minimal statecraft required of this cohort of deputies and senators in the Oireachtas is to start considering the optimal constitutional accommodations that would provide a soft landing to the possible losers in the referendums. The losers could be Ulster Unionists, but they could also be Northern Nationalists, though they will be entitled to another referendum seven years later if the conditions are met again. I have been told that it is a bit rich for the Irish to demand that treaties be honored, given that the independence of Ireland was accomplished through unilateral amendment or repudiation of a treaty's articles. There is, however, an incomparable difference between voluntary treaties, freely negotiated and ratified, and coerced treaties imposed by the threat of terrible and immediate war. Similar comparative condemnation should attach to insincere treaty making. Preserving constitutional order and avoiding any diminution in the protection of rights across the island is the immediate challenge faced by our politicians. Preparing all, South and North, for the possibility of reunification so that it may occur as democratically, peaceably, and constitutionally as possible is the larger and more demanding challenge, both for this political class and for those who will follow them. Thank you. Brendan, thank you very much for that, for that paper. Much to discuss there. Uh, we now have uh, three respondents, and then we have uh, uh, President Higgins' response. Professor Henry Patterson is Emeritus Professor of Irish Politics at Ulster University. He's written extensively on 20th century Irish history, including Ireland's Violent Frontier, the Border and Anglo-Irish Relations During the Troubles. And his paper is entitled Class, Statehood, and Identity, A Northern Perspective. Henry Patterson. Thank you, John, and thank you, President Higgins, for giving me the opportunity to speak at this fifth session of MACNA 100. Professor O'Leary has provided us with an impressive, historically informed political science overview of the Free State, Northern Ireland, and the UK since partition. My focus is a narrower one that addresses an issue that has been largely absent from the decade of centenary's treatment of the North, that of class and unionist identity. 
My focus will be on two groups, the shipyard owners and shipyard workers of Belfast. This is also in part the history of my father's family who arrived in East Belfast from Scotland in the last decade of the 19th century. Their history, in particular that involving employment in Belfast's premier industry, can be used as a concrete example of the radical and sectarian tendencies within a key sector of the Protestant working class. At times, these tendencies cohabited in the same individual as Connell Parr, as recently demonstrated in his work on the shipyard playwright and master of an orange lodge, Thomas Corndorf. From the 1880s, the industrial and political bloc between the shipyard owners and their largely Protestant labour force was, in the words of Arthur Balfour, to the War Cabinet in 1918, the heart of the Ulster movement. Belfast's engineering and shipbuilding industries were orientated outwards to an Irish Sea Triangle, of which the other points were Glasgow and Liverpool, and beyond that to the Empire. In the case of the shipyards, a broader imperialism of free trade also linked them to markets in the United States and Latin America. The city's most dynamic period of economic and demographic expansion would not have happened without these links. The founders of Holland and Wolf and Workmen and Clark shipyards were either migrants from the north of England and Scotland or their second generation descendants. A unionism without these productive forces would have found it much harder to resist home rule. By 1914, Harlan and Wolfe employed nearly 25,000 when its works in Liverpool and Southampton are included. In Belfast, along with Workman Clark, the shipyards employed over 20,000 workers. The industrial might of Belfast in British and international terms is well summed up by the economic historian David Edgerton. Belfast could claim Harland and Wolfe, the largest shipyard in the world. Belfast Harbour built the largest dry dock in the world. It had in the Sirocco Works, the world's largest tea dry and machinery maker, and in the Belfast Rope Works, the largest maker of rope in the world. Shipyard workers set their own records. The Guinness World Record in riveting was set in by a workman Clark Riveter in 1918. Much of, the industry, of this industry was located in the east of the city, across the lagoon from the city centre and the older, larger, largely textile-based industrial districts of the Shankill and the Falls. The giant Queen's Island works of Holland and Wolfe, the Rope Works and the Soroka Works were all in the Ballymacarrat district whose main artery was the lower Newtonards Road. The expanding workforces were housed in row after row of new red brick terraces in East and Southeast Belfast, many of which were built in the last two decades of the 19th century. It was in this part of Belfast that my father was born in 1917 to parents living in D Street, which runs north from the lower Newtonards Road towards the Queen's Island. The family, like many other Scottish Presbyterian migrants, arrived in Belfast from the shipbuilding centres of the Clyde in the 1890s. 
That decade had seen the population of the city expand from almost 260,000 to just under 350,000, the largest increase in its history. Migrants from other shipbuilding centres brought not only their trades, but also their politics. In 1893, some of the workers expelled from Harlan Wolf were identified as Scottish home rulers. My great-grandfather William had been a riveter on the Clyde. According to the 1901 census, the family was living in 10 Melrose Avenue, a recently constructed terrace of six houses off the Beersbridge Road, a few hundred yards from the roadworks. William was now a riveter in Holland and Wolfe, while his son, Henry, and a daughter, Eliza, were employed in the roadworks. By 1912, both William and Henry were working in Holland and Wolfe. Henry was now also a riveter, following the common path of many skilled shipyard workers throughout the UK, where apprenticeships jealously guarded by the craft unions were obtained through the intervention of a father or other relative. Given the religious and ethnic divisions in Belfast, this meant Protestant domination of the shipyard crafts. Henry married and moved to Hollycroft Avenue, the next street up the Beardsbridge Road. A few streets further was Hindford Street, where in 1945, at number 125, George Ivan Morrison, the great Van Morrison, was born, the son of an electrician in Holland and Wolf. In 1912, William and Henry walked down the Beersbridge Road to the Bloomfield Avenue Presbyterian Church to sign the Ulster Covenant. Henry was in the Orange Order, which by 1914 had over 13,000 members in Belfast, an increase of almost a third, a third since the introduction of the Third Home Rule Bill. The Orange Order never constituted a solid block within unionism, representing as it did a wide range of views and social groups. It was as divided by class as with the broader unionist movement. D Street had a hall of the independent Orange Order, a radical working class schism from the main order led by a shipyard worker, Thomas Sloan. Sloan's successful bid to become MP for South Belfast in 1902 had been financed by William Perry, the managing director of Horn and Wolf, and at that time a Home Rule supporter. Perry's family, like most of the Presbyterian business class in Belfast, had been liberal in politics and anti-Orange down, down to the 1880s, when Gladstone's support for Home Rule had pushed the majority into a unionist alliance with her former conservative opponents. Perry had maintained the faith, in part because his support for Catholic and Labour representation on Belfast Corporation when he was Lord Mayor had robbed him of a unionist nomination for South Belfast. He soon afterwards declared his support for Home Rule. Orangeism was certainly a barrier to broader class unity across the religious divide, but not to class consciousness within the shipyards. In 1920, some of the trade union militants expelled were orange men. Portrayals of the order as embodying a colonially rooted ethos of Protestant superiority over Catholics get only part of the truth of working class orangeism. FSL Alliance's description of the order still rings true. 
It appealed to religious primitivism, but it also provided color, poetry, and its own kind of magic for ordinary drab lives. A photograph taken in a piece of, on a piece of open ground in D Street in 1912 shows three rows of men seated and standing wearing orange and black sashes and collarettes with at each, with at each side members of the East Belfast UVF in uniform and carrying rifles. The men are standing in front of Lundy's pole, a telegraph pole converted into a symbolic display of loyalist determination to resist home rule and cast out traitors. In February 1912, Perry had organized a pro-home rule meeting in Celtic Park in Belfast, addressed by Winston Churchill and John Redmond. Four days later, he was pelted with flour, rotten eggs, and herring when getting the steamer to Scotland in Larne. By 1920, Perry had reverted to unionism. De Valera and Collins were perceived as such a direct threat to the future of the shipyards that he was making contingency plans to transfer the business to the Clyde. At the north end of D Street, before the bridge which took workers into the shipyard, was the, o was the Oval, the ground of Glentoran Football Club. The land on which the Oval was built, along with a large part of Ballymacarrot, between the Queen's Island and the Lower Newtonards Road, was owned by the property developer, factory owner, and unionist politician, Sir Daniel Dixon. Dixon was a key mover in the floating of Glentoran as a public company in 1900, along with Gustav Wolf and Perry. In 1912, the Oval was the venue for an anti-home rule rally, with a crowd created a human union jack. Glontoran was the sporting embodiment of a unionist class alliance. The player register for 1911-1912 lists the trades of the players, fitters, caulkers, shipwrights, platers, painters, and shipyard laborers. Craftsmen were the shipyard elite and constituted around two-thirds of the workforce. Tasked with riveting together the iron and steel plates of a ship's hull, the riveters were amongst the highest paid crafts. These were Lenin's labor aristocracy, the skilled workers who formed the bedrock of craft unionism and labor politics. However, although their wages were higher, the work was insecure due to the very severe business cycle of the industry. Unemployment was common, even in periods of prosperity. Working on the hulls of ships in all weathers was dangerous, and deaths and injuries from falls or objects falling on workers were common. The constant noise of hammering resulted in many riveters being deaf by the end of their 30s. Inhalation of fumes from the heating of rivets could lead to lung disease. It killed my grandfather at the age of 50. Many of those who attended the 1912 Unionist rally were by January 1919 involved in the shipbuilding and engineering workers' strike for reduction of working hours from 54 to 44, which shut down the city for three weeks. Emmett O'Connor has labeled the two years from the summer of 1918 to the summer of 1920 as Belfast's two red years, pointing to the mass strike 
and the election of 13 Labour councillors to the corporation in January 1920. The shipyard expulsions of July 1920 have captured the attention of historians. However, the broader social and economic history of Ballymacarrat, its industrial muscle and trade union history have hardly featured in analysis of this period and the subsequent history of the Northern Ireland state. The shipyards contained a dark tradition manifest since the 1860s of vicarious retribution against Catholic workers for the political and violent acts of Irish nationalists in other parts of the island. But they also contained those who in, 1890, in the 1893 disturbances over the second Home Rule Bill tried to protect their Catholic workmates from the mob. The main craft unions condemned the violence and intimidation in 1893 and 1912. And it was to the shipyard workers of his parish that the Reverend John Redmond of St. Patrick's on the Lower Newtonards Road turned in July 1920 when he organised bands of unarmed volunteers to protect the premises of local Catholics and prevent rioting and looting. However, there is little doubt that at a time of on, uh, intense uncertainty about the political future of the North, many shipyard workers were indif indifferent to the fate of those who had been expelled, and others feared the consequences of opposing them all. But the nature of the national question was not the sole issue at play. Employers and the unionist leadership shared an acute class anxiety. The Belfast Newsletter blamed the 1919 strike on Bolshevik agitators, and Carson was president of the British Empire Union, established by ultras in the Conservative Party to expose Bolshevism and the dangers connected with nationalism. In Belfast, a key role in this organization was played by the shipyard militants of the Ulster Unionist Labour Association, who identified socialism and industrial militancy with Sinn Féin. The UULA did its work well. Over 1,850 of the expelled were Protestants, many of them trade union and labour activists. Along with the high rates of unemployment from the mid-1920s to the end of the 1930s, the spectre of shipyard radicalism, which had so troubled unionist leaders in 1919, was banished. The Second World War resulted in an upsurge of militancy in the shipyards, engineering factories and aircraft factories, which between them employed around 40,000 workers in 1944. It was the heavily unionized shipyard and engineering workers who made Northern Ireland the most strike-prone region of the UK during the Second World War. It was East Belfast workers, many of them from the shipyard, who gave Billy McCulloch, General Secretary of the Communist Party of Northern Ireland, almost 6,000 votes in the 1945 Stormont election. Without the fear of losing this class's support, the unionist government may well have indulged its most reactionary sectors and used devolution to keep out the welfare state when it was introduced in the rest of the United Kingdom after 1945. My grandfather was part of the respectable working class with no time for rioters, but equally no sympathy for red flaggers. He had joined the Congregationalists a small, ultra-democratic sect 
that expected regular church and Sunday school attendance and an ordered, an ordered life distinct from the chaos and disorder which was thought to characterise the rougher elements of the working class. With six children, the eldest of them nine at the time of partition, his work and the income it brought was the centre of his existence. The summer violence in 1920 was uncomfortably close to his family. In two incidents at or near D Street, five young Protestants were shot dead by the military. However, with some of the best wages for skilled workers in the UK and relatively full order books down to 1925, Harland and Wolfe provided the means by which he was able to exit East Belfast and take his family to the safely unionist town of Bangor. His unionism and British national identity, like that of many other working class Protestants, was rooted in taken for granted aspects of everyday life, at the core of which was their work and the nexus of economic and political relations with Britain and the empire that made it possible. These included trade unions and for a minority, labor and socialist politics. The material basis for this working class unionist identity was still remarkably strong in the 1960s. Like the iconic gantries, Samson and Goliath, were built in 1969 and 1973. It was also manifest in the shop stewards movement, which had developed during the Second World War. In August 1969, when violence broke out in Belfast, it was, shop, it was the shop stewards who called a mass meeting of the shipyard workforce to successfully oppose attempts by loyalist militants to repeat the expulsions of the 1920s. In the words of Sandy Scott, the chief shop steward in the yard, the shipyard men are determined to maintain the peace and set an example to the province. Thus, for all the sectarianism that existed within the shipyards, without the class consciousness that was also rooted there, the Northern Ireland state would have been much more like the carnival of reaction that Connolly predicted. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. Professor Lindsay Erner Byrne is our next respondent, and she's Professor of Irish Gender History at the School of History in UCC. She's published widely on modern Irish history with a focus on poverty, welfare, gender, sexuality, health, and vulnerable and marginalized groups. Her most recent book, uh, co-authored with Diane Urquhart, is The Irish Abortion Journey, 1920 to 2018, her paper in this seminar is entitled Institutionalising Exclusion in Modern Ireland. Thank you for that generous introduction and thank you, President, for the invitation to address you here today. It's a real privilege to be involved in such important reflections and it's a nice time as well to draw attention to the humanities and the contribution that we can make in particular history to, to understanding ourselves as a nation um, and possibly making for a better future, I hope. Um, I'm going to start with uh, a little bit of a vignette or a story uh, and, and from there I want to open out into thinking about what the state meant for the people that were to live in it. Um, on the 25th of August 1928, the readers of the Connacht Tribune were informed. On Thursday morning, a young woman inmate of the Magdalen Asylum Galway, whose name is stated to be unknown, escaped from the institution. 
She is described as being aged about 25 years, wearing a black skirt, and had a slight stoppage in her speech. For me, this small snippet of a day in the life of Ireland in the late 1920s, barely a square inch of newsprint, tells us much about the status of women, the power of institutions, and how our brutal treatment of the most vulnerable was normalized and played out in everyday life. The strange breed of young woman inmate didn't even warrant the very basic ingredients of biography. The only distinguishing feature of certainty was her slight stoppage of speech. Now I think in this period of commemoration, we might pause for just a minute to think about the life obscured in this ad and the world revealed by it. How could anyone place an ad not knowing the woman's name? How long had she been in the asylum? She was 25, so legally an adult. On what grounds was she imprisoned? And did her imprisonment predate the very state we're considering today? Was it that stoppage in her speech that had singled her out and rendered her different? Was she caught and returned to her prison? And did anyone ever remember her name and record either her life or her death? However, in her bid for escape, she pierced briefly the sanctimonious world of moral certainty Ireland was building on backs such as hers. She also tells us a good deal about what the President has asked me to consider today, and that is the institutionalization of exclusion. We are currently experiencing a period of self-reflection as a nation, and so we should be, which has been largely focused on our treatment of women and children in carceral institutions. This is no coincidence, because the systematic demonization of the so-called unmarried mother since the mid-19th century, and before indeed, was indicative of a wider system of structural violence in which all women were contingent actors, their belonging dependent on their behavior. Any woman could have been sent to a Magdalene Asylum or a mother and baby home and be held there for an indeterminate period of time against her will. And I imagine many, many women reading that newspaper, and indeed young women, and knowing that fact. This was, as we can see from the ad in the Connacht Tribune, played out in full sight of the nation, in part because it was supposed to act as a warning to others, but also because it was part of the process of institutionalizing exclusion. And that's what I want to think about a little bit, that idea of how that process worked out and what was necessary to get so many people, if you like, to go along with it. The process was considered vital to the new nation, underpinned as it was by ideas of belonging. After all, we can only include if we have a sense of who it is we want to exclude, as I think both the papers before me now uh, indicate. This process of normalizing these categories, the insider and the outsider, the respectable and the deviant, was a vital component of nation building in many places beyond Ireland as well. As we've seen among Professor Patterson's Belfast shipyard workers, this process was often complex and always influenced or inflected 
by the priorities of the given context, be that religion, gender, class, ethnicity, or race. It's usually framed as intuitive and natural or God-given and moral because a prerequisite for institutionalization is its normalization. In Ireland, institutionalizing became the verb of choice for the realization of exclusion and on a really significant level. Um, and this is also inflected, of course, uh, hugely so by class. The visible role of women on the anti-treaty side of the Civil War and the active role of many women in the unrest and revolution since 1916 added, I think, a new intensity to an anxiety which had been evolving since the early days of the suffrage campaigns. And it's really acute, that fear. But what does this mean if women come out into the public sphere? And to what degree is that going to destabilize the ideas we had of, of, of respectability or indeed of nationhood? Thus, characterizing the women engaged in the civil war, and these were the kind of words often used as hysterical, crazed, and emotional, God forbid, uh, did important work in denying them any political agency. And I think also in effectively undermining the idea of women as capable of independent political consciousness that wasn't dangerous. And it's really subtle and not so subtle in some environments, but the impact of that was really subtle on the ideas of who held political consciousness and who could engage with their statehood on those terms. As Cardinal Logue lamented in 1923, from a pulpit quite similar to this one, a number of young women and girls have become involved in this wild orgy of violence and destruction. Should this fell spirit spread, he warned, alas for the future of motherhood in Ireland. We have ever been proud of the women and girls of Ireland, and justly so, he told his audience. Their reputation has been a precious asset of the nation. So while there's little doubt, I think, that the fear of social unraveling underlay much of the so-called moral panic of the 1920s, these people were afraid that this civil war would be unstoppable. And that fear is very, very uh, obvious in the way in which it fuels the sort of gendered representation of this chaos. Irish nationalism and unionism's cleavage to the precepts of respectability, I think, were equally important drivers of this agenda. How deviance is classified and marginalization is defined tells us a good deal about where political power lies. The notion of respectability provided fertile soil for the making of a fledgling Irish nation embedded, as it was, in middle-class ideas of ownership, progress, governance, and control. In effect, respectability became an organizing principle. It had places and spaces for people, creating a logic of governance and behavior by ordering, protecting, and confining. And I want to come back to that idea of protecting. For me, its greatest trick was to mask the violence used to hold it in place by rendering it normal for the greater good, thus converting implicit and even explicit violence into a reasonable correction, an action to protect the whole. On Confirmation Day 1924, the Catholic Bishop of Galway explained to his flock, 
that there were six local women, he said, on the parish due to their lapses in virtue. Now, what he meant by on the parish was in the work home, which at that point had been renamed the county home. And you'll often hear people confusing that with mother and baby homes. The terms are actually should be distinct because they were different institutions, but they were part of this network of institutionalization. So picture yourselves. Confirmation Day 1924, parents sitting beside you, and the archbishop is telling the bishop is telling people that there are six local girls on the parish public nature of this declaration is very important. To the fathers of Ireland, he said, if your girls do not obey you and they are not in at the hours you appoint for them, lay the lash upon their backs. And I know the president has given the full citation at another one of these Machnav uh, events of that particular quote, but it would have had real resonance for the parents in the audience. But think about the permission this ordering gave for the embedding of violence at the heart of social relationships. They don't do what they tell you, lay the lash upon their backs. And into social structures. And it remains palpable and had real and physical consequences for thousands of people. For all the young boys and girls sitting in that audience, particularly for the young girls who would fear viscerally ending up on a parish. Worse, declared from the pulpit. In the name of respectability, institutions such as Magdalen asylums, county homes, and mother and baby homes were normalized as sites of moral correction. Nor was this a uniquely Catholic message. The readers of the Church of Ireland Gazette in the same year, also in 1924, were informed that the increased moral threat which, posed, which Ireland faced was owing to, and I quote, the fact that young women have a greater degree of liberty accorded to them Therefore, the author told his audience, the applications to rescue homes pouring in from the superior class of unmarried girls, from clerks, typists, teachers, and certified nurses are mounting by the day. And the message there to the audience is, class is no protection from immorality if women are given too great a freedom. And we know also from recent reports that the way in which institutionalization functioned across the border was not much different. There was no comfort for women in crossing those borders. The rhetoric and the impact and meaning of that rhetoric was remarkably similar. Deviant women, and the definition could be broad and arbitrary, were to be excised from the bosom of the nation. The single mother was framed as an anathema to the legitimate family. She undermined it. She endangered its standing and the standing of all its other members. You didn't want to have a sister of yours on the parish that would make your own prospects of marriage uh, more complicated and difficult. Thus, the respectable family needed to banish her, and they were told so, and told so frequently. Indeed, the fact that in individual houses and homes around the country, it was often impossible to reconcile the ideal with the real wasn't a weakness of this orthodoxy. It was its core strength. Because the tension created between that disjuncture encouraged conformity and silence. Instead of sitting at home and thinking, this isn't how it is for us. This isn't the reality for us. Let's speak out. You thought, let's stay quiet and do our best to not draw attention to ourselves. You don't want to be declared from the pulpit. When the consequences were so high how many people were in a position to speak up? 
The ruse of protection meant that only when you failed to perform as you ought did you notice the categories that held your social existence, good daughter, good wife, moral girl, upstanding citizen, were not merely abstract. Then the protective veneer became something else, something much less benign, something with the power of moral correction, a license to control and force compliance. A dangerous mother was removed, an immoral daughter was expelled, a neglectful parent had their children taken away. This could be done for your own good, for the greater good, for the good of the nation. The implications of the moral universe the new Irish Free State cultivated was not just hyperbole. Its painful and often devastating impact is inscribed in our archives. Its political economy informed everything, including, for example, the military service pensions. The collection, as you'll know, is online. It's a wonderful resource. A colleague of mine, Marie Coleman, uh, told me very early on, it's not just a source for revolutionary history, it's a wonderful source for social history because, of course, these things don't exist in a vacuum. And in a sense, that's what I'm interested in. How did this kind of notion about respectability intertwine with who gets valued in this new state and who does not? And I'm interested in how that plays out on a micro level. We think about the rhetoric, and we tend to quote the archbishop from the pulpit, and that's who we remember. But what did what he said actually mean for individual people? Well, let me give you one example from the pension collection. In 1922, Mrs. Rose P. sought a pension for herself and her two small children upon the death of her 24-year-old husband, shot dead after only three weeks of service in the new National Army. However... There was a fly in the official ointment. Rose had not been legally married to the father of her children. Although the Irish Ministry of Defence pointed out that the British Army would have recognised her as a common law wife for the purposes of a pension, the new Irish dispensation was to prove its discerning credentials by refusing her and her children support. And her children ended up in an institution, literally, the price of the new state's moral imperative was to institutionalize exclusion. And we can see it played out in the archives, really wherever you look. Despite this negation, and this is the thing that actually moved me most when I looked at the file, it took them uh, 97 pages to say no, by the way, and two years. But despite this negation, Mrs. P's legitimacy as a mother and her right to compensation for the loss of her breadwinner and life partner who had died in service of this new state, she felt no sense of rightful anger or expressed none at all. In fact, she felt fear. And she wrote, begging the Ministry for Defence not to blow her social cover. Please don't tell my employer that I was not married to my husband and that I am therefore not a legitimate widow of the nation. Because she feared, and probably rightly so, that she would have lost that very precious job she had in the county home. The gap between the ideal and the real was often left to women to negotiate alone and in fear. While the 1922 Constitution and of the Free State honoured the commitment to equal suffrage, it did not prove effective at preventing the enactment of legislation throughout the 1920s and 1930s which pigeonholed women's citizenship and undermined it in terms of employment, 
in terms of welfare and in terms of even serving on a jury, therefore the right to be, uh, uh, um, if you like, judged by your peers was denied all women. The 1937 Constitution represented a high point of this gendered vision. Um, it's been referred to already by our keynote speaker in terms of how regressive it was in defining women's role through their capacity as homemakers. Indeed, in a response to the draft constitution, the Joint Committee of Women's Societies called out the ruse of protectionist rhetoric for what it was, telling de Valera, the only protection women need and the only protection women ask is equality under the constitution of rights and opportunities. And I think their use of the word opportunities is really interesting. They were one of the few organizations actually campaigning on behalf of the unmarried mother and were aware of the way, of the implications for, of, for opportunities in a way that lots of other contemporaries weren't really until the 50s and 60s. Miss Rose P might well have agreed with them, but ironically for her and for thousands of women like her, the 1937 constitution may have pigeonholed her as a homemaker, but it was never matched by its promise. It promised not to force women from the home due to economic necessity. And as J.J. Lee remarked, this was honored more in the breach than the observance. So what of historians? And I'll conclude with this reflection on my, on my discipline. Sadia Hartman, who works so imaginatively to reclaim the history of black women, when considering the challenge of writing the history of women slaves asked, how does one revisit the scene of subjection without replicating the grammar of violence? One clear way, I think, to avoid reinscribing the harm of the past in the narrative of our history is by deconstructing the ecosystem of power that has shaped the nation, its archives, and in many respects, the discipline of history itself. We might start by asking how many people could have afforded to see the world differently? Who was in a position to act differently? What would it have taken to produce a counter-narrative of inclusion and compassion to say to Miss Rose P, of course the nation will take care of you and your children. That's what we fought for. How many lived against the grain of the consensus, absorbing their pregnant daughters standing by their disgraced children, siblings, or neighbors. What were their strategies, and what can we learn from them? Institutionalizing exclusion was pivotal to the structural violence that underpinned inequality in the past. A failure to acknowledge this in the history we write misses how central it is to the story of the nation and to the continuity of those inequalities today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lindsay Byrne, thank you very much. Our next speaker is Dr. Theresa Reedy, a senior lecturer in the Department of Government and Politics at University College Cork, an expert on electoral systems. She will examine how partition impacted on who was elected and on what agenda in a partitioned Ireland. Theresa Reedy. Thank you, President, for the invitation to be here today. It's a great privilege. Um, if I might, I'm going to take us back to one of the more technical aspects of, of politics, our electoral systems. 
people like me are usually only allowed, on, allowed out on election day. So it is a great pleasure to, to be here. Uh, at their core, electoral systems convert votes cast at elections into seats in Parliament. And this is the opening statement of nearly every book that's ever been written about electoral systems. But of course, we know that electoral systems do very much more uh, than that technical function. Michael Gallagher and Paul Mitchell describe the electoral system as the crucial link in the chain of representative democracy. And Pippa Norris has said that it is one of the most enduring decisions that a state can actually make about its political systems. Both statements, I think, have particular relevance for what happened on the island of Ireland. Proportional representation by the single transferable vote, which you should probably say at this stage is rather an obscure global electoral system, um, was the electoral system chosen for elections north and south at the foundation of the two separate political jurisdictions. Within a short number of years, PRSTV was rejected for use in Northern Ireland and replaced with First Past the Post, a majoritarian system, while PRSTV has actually become one of the defining institutions of politics um, in the free state, later the Republic of Ireland. Importantly, the, the two systems in operation, uh, PR and, and First Past the Post, um, have very different logics, principles and, and objectives. But interestingly, they yielded quite similar types of politics, um, majoritarianism infused politics in, in both parts of the island um, in, the, uh, in the early decades. Um, but ultimately, the, these would change quite noticeably as the decades uh, progressed, as society changed and political conditions evolved. PRSDV in the Republic proved itself an electoral formula that could reflect change, while first past the post in Northern Ireland often amplified underpinning divisions. The vibrant field of electoral scholarship has demonstrated concretely that the different families of electoral systems generate notable and variable outcomes as happened on the island of Ireland. The electoral system adopted can impact upon which citizens are represented and to what extent, the composition of the party system, the common form of government in the state, and indeed government durability itself. Matt Shugart has also described how electoral system choice impacts on the broader concerns of politics, uh, such as regime stability, democratic quality, and management of ethnic conflict. But indeed, it has also been shown that political context systematically shapes the effects of electoral systems. And it is useful to unpack some of these points in a short review of electoral politics in Northern Ireland and the Irish Free State. As early as the 19th century, it was understood that proportional systems generated more equal representation, giving a closer relationships between the votes cast for a party and the number of party or the number of seats it received in Parliament. But the accepted downside of that was also recognised, and that was in the form of uh, more what was then considered to be unstable government, coalition government. Of course, we have revised these views somewhat uh, in recent decades. Majoritarian systems provided a more imperfect relationship between votes cast and seats won, but it provided enduring and stable uh, government as the early theory went.
These central propositions uh, were formalized into theoretical models in the 1950s by the French political scientist Maurice Duverger. Duverger classified party and government consequences as the mechanical effects of electoral system choice, but he also elaborated on the psychological effects of electoral system choice, and, and these were the ways in which uh, both voters and political parties reacted and changed their behaviour and fitted it to the type of system which was in, in place. Uh, and one of the kind of important ones here is, is the idea that party entry into the system is quite difficult in a majoritarian system. And that creates all kinds of disincentives for people to set up political parties because their chances of success are, are so, much, uh, so much the lesser. Now, these are not laws, as we might say, in the natural world, but they're as close to laws of as we get in, in political science. Uh, so, for example, we know that the effective number of political parties in majoritarian systems is usually about two, just over two, whereas in PR systems, it tends to trend closer to four. Northern Ireland and the Irish Free State provide a fascinating comparative case study of the outcomes of different electoral systems in operation in neighbouring but substantially different polities. In the early decades, these two systems delivered unusually similar majoritarian politics with a small number of parties and single party governments, but they tracked in very different directions as the decades passed. Coming to PR in, in Ireland, John Coakley in his many publications provided a valuable overview of the reasoning and decisions that led to the introduction of PRSTV in, in Ireland. It was adopted uh, first for selected constituencies under the Home Rule Act, uh, for local elections in Sligo in 1918, and then laterally for the whole country. Uh, and of course, it was chosen for parliamentary elections in the Northern and Southern parliaments under the Government of Ireland Act in 1920. Interestingly, the selection uh, of PRSTV as the electoral uh, system for Ireland was largely uncontroversial. Uh, discussion of electoral reform had actually been quite widespread across uh, Great Britain since the middle of the 19th uh, century, and there were quite considerable concerns expressed about minority representation. But momentum for change actually also took hold in Ireland. An Irish branch of the Proportional Representation Society was established, and Basil Chubb has highlighted the attendance of Arthur Griffith at an early public lecture in 1911 as being decisive in shifting Sinn Féin's support in favour of the, the system. The representation of minority interests that was offered by PRSTV persuaded Griffith that it could work effectively for the complex politics of early 20th century pre-independence Ireland. The widespread use of PR across new European democracies to deal with class, religious and linguistic cleavages, and the fact that it was not used in Britain were also cited as important indicators of why it was embraced by Sinn Féin. The only voices in opposition to PRSTV came from the Ulster Unionist side, and their opposition was rooted in the view that it was un-British. Um, indeed, in 1885, I found a quote from Gladstone where he described STV as artificial, not known to our usages and history. There were strategic considerations at play um, in the thinking of British administration uh, and its support for PRSTV at elections in Ireland. It was persuaded that the system could deliver representation for the Protestant minority on the island, the Southern Unionist minority, and the Northern uh, Unionist majority. 
Con O'Leary has argued that the outcomes of elections, specifically in the 1918 election, um, in which nationalists swept the board using first-past-the-post, reinforce uh, support for STV as an alternative, because it could prevent um, the, the kind of um, electoral outcomes that had been achieved. He cites later newspaper coverage of the Sligo, Sligo local elections that use PRSTV, and the fact that Sinn Féin was actually pushed into second place at those as important in persuading Southern Unionists that PR could protect their interests and deliver minority representation. The PR system also delivered representation for nationalists in local election districts in Northern Ireland, kind of further reinforcing that particular view. So British electoral reformers favoured PRSTV. Uh, and there's also another important point, and one that we won't say much about today, and that is that it, it is a system um, that is considered to preserve the relationship or the link uh, between voter and constituency representative in a way that other forms of PR do not, and one that was actually quite valued um, given the legacy of, of British elections and, and their intent and focuses. So with the British um, administration on side and tacit support from nationalists, PRSTV emerged as the electoral system of choice for parliaments north and south. PR was included in the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 and was later free, uh, transposed into the Free State Constitution. Um, several histories that address the choice of PRSTV remarked that it was selected at the time because it was the only version of PR that was actually known uh, to the pe people who were writing um, the, the, uh, the treaties and the constitutions. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that that's fully borne out. Jolie notes that there were concerns expressed during the writing of the Free State Constitution uh, that PR might lead to an excessive form of multi-partyism and unstable government. And he goes on to provide, uh, Jolie goes on to provide a long quote from Ernest Blythe um, on a similar point. So whether they did or did not know that there were other forms of, of PR, um, the framers of, of the Free State Constitution and indeed of, of the preceding Anglo-Irish Treaty were aware of the potential implications of the choice of electoral systems, so the consequences were known and understood. The early PRSTV elections, especially in Southern Ireland, later the, the Free State, tell us very little about the, uh, about the system. And indeed, that's somewhat true in Northern Ireland uh, as well. Electoral packs and uncontested seats uh, delivered preordained outcomes. So it's difficult to infer very much from uh, how they operated. The first, what we might today term a free and fair general election, was held in 1923. It used PR, which was mandated in the Free State Constitution, and the STV part actually only com came along later in the Electoral Acts um, in 1923. The doll consisted of 153 uh, TDs elected from 30 constituencies with district magnitudes, and that just means the number of, con uh, the number of parliamentarians to be elected from each constituency between three and nine. And district magnitude matters because, in general, we know that the higher the district magnitude, the more proportional the outcome of the election. So the closer the relationship between the votes cast for a political party and the number of seats that the party wins. Uh, and it's something that is kind of a persistent thread to analyses of elections um, in, later in the Republic of Ireland, because although we have a proportional system, we have tended to have district magnitudes that are somewhat lower um, than in other, uh, in other um, countries that use um, proportional representation. 
A minority single party government was all installed, albeit one that was able to act as though it had a majority because of anti-treaty uh, Sinn Féin abstention. Several new and splinter parties formed in the ensuing years, reflecting one of Duverger's psychological effects that party entry is easier in a PR system. However, most failed to mount serious challenges at later elections and indeed faded from politics or were absorbed into uh, existing parties. The first 1927 election substantially defined the party system uh, in the Free State Later Republic as we know it today with Fianna Fáil's early performance setting the ground for its later dominance, and the second election resulted many of the smaller parties losing their seats, um, and they would not return to, uh, to Parliament. The effective number of elective parties is a measure of political fragmentation, and this was above four uh, until about the close of the 1920s. Now, this is a measure that um, covers the number of political parties, but also their relative size in, in Parliament. So it speaks to political fragmentation. Uh, new party entry uh, was a feature of elections in the 1940s, but it was actually not again until the late 1990s that we were to return to fragmentation levels uh, above four. Uh, the Republic of Ireland had a two-and-a-half-party system for most of the 20th century, an outcome that is generally more commonly associated with majoritarian electoral systems. There were periods of electoral uh, change, but the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour core uh, at the heart of politics um, usually reasserted itself. That is until the early 21st century when we now say that politics is mean reverting no more, and indeed we look at a very different kind of party landscape. In many ways, the Free State provided a rare inversion of Maurice Duverger's propositions. It began with a multi-party system that Peter Mayer described as polarised pluralism. It drifted towards a two-and-a-half-party system for much of its uh, lifetime during the 20th century. Uh, and then by the 1990s, we see the seeds of a more fully-fledged multi-party system starting to emerge um, in the system. No one form of government predominated, but single-party governments were a regular feature until 1989. And we often gloss over the, the detail of, of governments um, in the kind of early decades of the state, and we think about kind of perpetual Fianna Fáil government, but I think it's useful to remember that some of those governments were minority governments, not majority governments. So some elements of um, a majoritarianism infused politics, but it was not all uh, pervasive. PRSTV was designed into the politics of the Free State to provide representation for the minority Anglo-Irish community, and it did achieve that, at least for a time, through the university seats and the electoral rules. Joe Lee, though, notes with some irony that the first minority saved by PRSTV were actually anti-treaty Sinn Féin, who would surely have been eliminated had uh, First Past the Post uh, been in use. Minority voices, uh, voices were accommodated uh, within the politics of the Free State, but it indeed would be wrong to assess the Free State as a, where, as a place where proportional representation delivered consensus politics and sensitivity to minority rights and needs. And we only need to, to look to Professor Erner Burns' uh, contribution to, to really reflect more on that. 
On balance, PRSTV operating in a largely homogenous political, uh, in a largely homogenous polity, provided majoritarian form of politics. The dominant group was able to impose its values and preferences on the whole. The Anglo-Irish community did not organise effectively in politics. Some left. Uh, some were absorbed into other political uh, movements, and their distinctive identity faded from politics uh, over the decades. Furthermore, a reduction in the district magnitude in 1935 created a form of electoral threshold that kept political fragmentation lower than it might otherwise have been. Dermot Farriter has also written about an inclination among politicians and political parties um, in, in the early decades of the state to diminish differences uh, between uh, themselves. Levels of electoral integrity in the free state were moderate. Malapportionment was largely absent due to constitutional constraints, but bouts of gerrymandering were not unknown all the way up until the 1970s. Political context matters and the electoral system for a long time delivered broadly proportional outcomes reflecting the conservative, quite authoritarian, if stable orientation of the vast majority of the electorate in the free state. Electoral engineers employed a different system and a different approach in Northern Ireland, um, one that also led to majoritarianism infusing elections, politics uh, and policy but in a more comprehensive and indeed stifling way. Elections to the Northern Parliament, known as Stormont elections, were first held in 1921 using PRSTV. Unionists won 40 of 52 seats in the Parliament, while the divided nationalists picked up just 12 or 23% of the seats on more than 30% of the votes, giving a clearly disproportional outcome at the election. Disproportionality declined somewhat at the 1925 election and the Ulster Unionist Party dropped to 62% of the seats on 55% uh, of the votes. And many identify that, that loss in support as being very important in informing and shaping the decision um, that would see PRSTV uh, being rejected for, for parliamentary elections. PRSTV was replaced with first past the post, first for local elections in 1923 and for parliamentary elections to Stormont in 1929. Uh, this change has been described as a flagrant abuse of power. First past the post is a majoritarian system and it delivered extreme majoritarian outcomes in Northern Ireland. In the first election using first past the post, uh, the UUP took 72% of the seats with 51% of the vote. Uh, and it's widely argued that the decision to abolish PRSTV served both partisan, but also importantly class interests in the unionist uh, community. First past the post ensured a dominant two-party system and perpetual single-party UUP government, features that were not to be interrupted until 1972. John Coakley has been to the fore in demonstrating that the uh, adoption of first past the post reinforced the bipolar character of the party system. And many have also uh, emphasized uh, that it, it diminished uh, the risk of intra-block fragmentation. In addition to the choice of electoral system, the wider abuse of electoral laws, gerrymandering and malapportionment meant that elections in Northern Ireland for many decades had 
what we would today describe as quite low levels of electoral integrity. Indeed, this point was made uh, by Professor O'Leary um, in his many works and also touched upon earlier today. And he has argued that although Northern Ireland had formal democratic rules, the operation of these rules in practice leads to very qualified assessments of the nature of early Northern Irish democracy. So in concluding, if I might return to the opening statement of Michael Gallagher and Paul Mitchell's definitive um, book on the topic of electoral systems, they open with the statement, electoral systems matter. They do indeed. And it is also true to say that their impacts and logics are mediated through political culture, the underpinning cleavages that shape politics, and also electoral laws. In Northern Ireland and the Free State, PRSTV and First Past the Post facilitated the dominant community in imposing their will for many decades. Majoritarian spirit um, dominated in, in both ju jurisdictions. But one political system had legitimacy, the other did not. In Northern Ireland, a majoritarian electoral system was chosen specifically to, minority, uh, to limit minority representation uh, and to shore up uh, integration in one particular community. It was also combined with notable abuse of the principles and laws of electoral integrity. In the Free State, the much smaller minority community achieved political representation and voice, initially disproportionately larger than their electoral weight. The 1937 constitution designed out some of that electoral advantage for the Anglo-Irish community, but their lack of political organization also contributed to the diminution of their representation over time. As the decades progressed, PRSTV delivered election outcomes with much lower levels of disproportionality than that of First Past the Post in Northern Ireland. And importantly, PRSTV is widely supported by the electorate. Voters rebuffed proposals to change the system to first past the post in referendums in 1959 and 1966. The Fianna Fáil proposals were robustly opposed by all of the main opposition parties who argued that the country would end up with perpetual Fianna Fáil government. Um, Blay and Massicott described the PRSTV system as giving maximum freedom to voters, uh, freedom that voters in the Republic have refused to relinquish. Despite two referendums, several serious reports, and indeed a constitutional convention looking at the matter, there are no serious signs that voters can be persuaded to surrender the great electoral power that the system confers upon them. And of course, Northern Ireland has returned to PRSTV, uh, having been, uh, uh, um, sorry, ha having sundered it um, some decades earlier. So historians and political scientists have tended to focus on different aspects of the impact of PRSTV in the Free State, later Republic of Ireland. But there is widespread agreement that the electoral system choice was central to the enduring political stability that was achieved. But indeed, equally in Northern Ireland, there is general agreement that the majoritarian outcomes delivered by first past the post exacerbated embedded community division. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you, Theresa. Our uh, next speaker, I now invite President Higgins to respond to Professor O'Leary's uh, paper. The events of the period 1922 to 1926 are among the most important in modern history, not only in terms of how they fell out and the consequences that flowed from them, but in what they tell us about the assumptions they carried about independence 
of the balance between parliamentary possibilities and military action, of the hold of empires and the force of a mythic dream of independence. Where a balance was won, had to be struck, it was one that accommodated overt and covert strategies, and within each, an ongoing tension as to the value of radical or accommodating projects in relation to the release from empire or accommodation within it. One cannot avoid, I feel, reflecting on what lives might have been saved, relationships allowed to survive and develop, had the express will and vote of the vast majority of the people of the island for independence in 1918 been accepted and acted upon. We have our independence because it was fought for. Yet neither the war with an empire that the majority had voted to leave, nor a later civil war on the implications of the conclusion of the treaty were inevitable. The decisions on the forms of independence were not strictly, of course, for the making by Irish people with their differing perspectives. They were being influenced by imperialist thinking, one that saw the cohesive value of loyalty to a crown, a perspective perhaps underestimated in Irish negotiations. There was, too, a huge difference beyond geography between those who had within empire experienced the benefits of an industrial revolution and its class conflicts, and those others struggling for survival for land, within a landlordism that, while it held ownership of land, in part as a means of status advancement in the society at the heart of empire, a society that viewed them as landowners to be on occasion visited in their domains, but not in any terms to be regarded as equals. As to understanding the period, we are fortunate to have available to us now a rich vein of new scholarship from new or neglected perspectives that can be added to the seminal work of Irish and American scholars in leaner times of publication. In preparing my own contribution, I've drawn on some of these, having had, of course, now the benefit of a brilliant scholarly informed original paper from Professor Brendan O'Leary of the University of Pennsylvania and excellent responses from Professor Henry Patterson of the University of Ulster, Professor Lindsay Erna Byrne of University College Cork and Dr. Theresa Reedy also of University College Cork. I have been enormously indebted to Eleni Quillenon's work on the diaries of Joseph Campbell, 1922 to 1923, entitled as I was among the captives, published as part of the Irish narrative series, edited by the late Professor David Fitzpatrick. I immediately state a personal interest, as my father, John Higgins, was interned in Tin Town in the Curra, and released at the same time as Joseph Campbell in December 1923. I should say that my father's brother, Peter, was at this time in Renmore Barracks, Galway, in the National Army. My aunts were on a small farm in County Clare. They did not take sides in the Civil War, although active in the War of Independence, but they sent parcels with cakes and cigarettes and items of food or clothes to those interned, while also seeking news of possible releases from local senior Free State figures. 
I believe Joseph Campbell's diary is incredibly important. As Elaine Nicolaron points out in her introduction to it, it is written by somebody who was already a well-known literary figure at the time of his imprisonment and the writing of the diary. Born in Belfast, he had spent time in what was the South Ulster Geltet and had experienced two of all the current literary movements, including modernism, which he discussed in the huts with Sean Okota and Francis Stewart, fellow prisoners. Older than most internees, he was also exceptional in educational or social background terms. The majority of those interned were, for the most part, experienced in the underclass of city life or in secure non-inheriting sons from small farms, the trades, with bar and grocery strongly represented. <coughs> It is from being among them, including the sharing of their lost hopes, that Joseph Campbell has left us his daily account, one that is sensory and deeply moving. It demonstrates the influence of his knowledge of and respect for work on confinement such as that of Dostoevsky, and his references to James Joyce's method of recording the minutiae of sensory experience is contemporary to Joyce. I was particularly interested in the period of the diary from Frank Aiken's announcement of the end of the Civil War on the 24th of May, 1923. All is lost for the internees. On the 3rd of June, 1923, there is an outburst of recrimination as to past bad leadership and tactics from Sean Okota, himself, of course, a diarist in the Irish language. However, it is the experience of the month-long unsuccessful hunger strike in 1923 that reveals most of the vulnerabilities on the part of internees and the incredible cruelty on the part of those running the internment camp. For those incarcerated and who have lost, what concerns them most in 1923 is the uncertainty of their position. Rumours of release circulate. Newspapers are scrutinised for a hint. Sometimes the rumours have been circulated by the authorities, such as the rumour during the hunger strike, that if those remaining on it go off it, all internees will be released. In this short address, I must leave over the detail of what is little less than an anthropology of those from all parts of the island of Ireland who, for a variety of reasons, were incarcerated for the danger that they were perceived as representing to the new state. Their prospects on release would be grim if a decade later, in preparation for power in 1932, representations from a newly constructed Finnefall would be sent to every parish to seek out IRA activists who had aspirations to get additional land. There would be no land on offer in 1924 for internees, nor for any, such as my father, would there be any prospect for, of a return to their jobs in the trades. Responding to this, many of those trained in bar and grocery, for example, sought after release to rent a space, to open a small business, thus making a job for themselves. Representations by fellow workers for them to be allowed to return to work had fallen on deaf ears. 
It would be similar in relation to the agricultural workers, many of whom had lost their employment with the division of domain land, the flight from and the burning of big houses. Immigration was an option envisaged by many, but not easily accessed, and a, ch a change had to be forced in the permit system run by the IRA. Without permission, it was forbidden, seen as being unpatriotic to emigrate, and organizations like Lanner Ale in the United States were instructed that only those with IRA permits should be allowed in. This prohibition, despite letters from Sean Mylan and others to de Valera, would prevail until July 1925, when the hemorrhage of those leaving was so great, thousands had left, that the Ord Cola had to give way. For those who stayed, unemployment was what beckoned. Worse than unemployment itself was the fact that their character was blackened. Their names would be handed in to newly formed police as suspects for the land agitation which was spreading and which the churches, as well as conservative politicians, were titling Bolshevism. For this reason, my father had to leave his home parish and experience his unemployment of 1924 elsewhere. The hunger for land, any land, more land, was widespread. Professor Turns Dooley draws on the statistical sources on land ownership for the period. By 1923, there were around 114,000 farms, comprising roughly 3,125,000 untenanted acres still to be transferred. Professor Dooley quotes Kevin O'Higgins' speech in the Dole of the 14th of June 1923 when he spoke of land grabbers. They cannot have law and violence. They cannot have an act and their own plunder. And insofar as, it can, as I can secure it, I will see that they do not have it. And by the time this bill reaches its final stages, I hope to be able to assure the Dole that there is not in any county over which we have, for the time being, responsibility and jurisdiction, one acre of land in the possession of any person but the legal owner. Terence Dooley's Burning the Big House, the story of the Irish country house in a time of war and revolution, is indeed a valuable, detailed scholarly study of the experience of those in the country houses during the conditions of the War of Independence, when some were burned, and the Civil War when many more were burned. The context in which the occupants of those houses found themselves is well traced. However, the immediate threats of the 1920s have to be placed in a larger and longer context of decline that begins with the first of the Land Acts in 1881. Professor Dooley gives us a picture of landlordism in the 1880s. Using Katie Hoppin's 500-acre threshold, for admission to the landlord class, and drawing on a return of Irish landowners for the 1870s, duly enumerated and categorised landowners in Ireland as follows. Those owning between 500 and 1,000 acres, 2,683 persons. 1,000 to 2,000 acres, 1,788. 2,000 to 5,000 acres, 1,225. 5,000 to 10,000 acres, 438. Above 10,000 acres, 303. While this structure of ownership was carrying huge debt, it could have never be sustainable, 
but its decline is in stages from the 1880s. That decline will also be affected, of course, by those leaving and by the loss of inheriting sons to the big houses in the World War when it comes. Then, too, a decrease in the release of funds from the British government for land purchase during the war made it difficult to agree terms of purchase with bonds yielding less than war bonds. By the end of the 1920s, the agricultural labourers are now being opposed by organised large farmers. Many labourers have, of course, emigrated. Those agitating are being referred to, from such ranks as the graziers and others, as Bolshevists. The graziers, who have deflected the fury of those yet to get land onto the undistributed domain lands, are themselves increasing their holdings. Former militants in particular, of course, are angry, and they have their advocates in the door. Professor Dooley quotes a dull speech of the time. There is one class who seems to be nobody's children, and they are the ex-army men of the old volunteers. I think if any class of people are entitled to consideration as regards land, they have first claim, because the Act of 1923 would not have been in existence at all. And we would not be here were it not for them. They seem to have been forgotten in every department. And I hope when the minister sends his inspectors out that he will give them directions to have these men given special consideration. How much land was involved? We do know, Professor Dooley tells us, referring to the British government's 400-page return of untenanted lands in the rural districts of Ireland in 1906, that distinguished 1,679 domains, on which there was, he puts it, a mansion, and calculated that their owners, the vast majority of whom were aristocrats, as defined, with a respectable smattering of gentry, clergymen, merchants, and professions, who continued to hold approximately 2.6 million acres of domain and untenanted lands across the 32 counties. To quote Dooley, big houses did not look out of place as long as they continued to be surrounded by hundreds of acres of domain and parkland. By way of contrast, and the contrast explains much in relation to land hunger and land agitation, it is worth noting that by 1917, of the 572,000 574 holdings in Ireland, 112,787 were less than one acre. 123,129 holdings were comprised of more than 15, but less than 30 acres. Land hunger was, of course, a constant in the 19th century. George Birmingham could write of a shopkeeper replying, get, replying to his question as to how the vote on home rule had gone in the Commons last night. The reply was quick, to hell with home rule, it's the land we're after. While politicians in Dublin hurled abuse then about forsaken principles and fealty to the British Crown, in rural Ireland people waited for the sanctioned transfer of their farms and many more for the redistribution of untenanted and domain lands. Some became impatient, as Dooley notes, at the beginning of the truce period, the county inspector of Tipperary reported, the hunger for land is great. Those who are landowners want more, while those who have none and who have been gunmen believe that the estates of loyalists, such as Kilroy, once cleared, will be divided amongst them. Standing as background, then, 
to the events of 1922-26, there are a number of forces that could influence the choices made, policy and responses, to a change that was imposed rather than chosen. Of these, the hunger for land is prominent. Yet there is, too, the huge variation in what is sought as independence. There was an obvious difference among those seeking it as to the means by which it would be achieved. It was not a binary choice between parliamentary or military means. Within each was a spectrum of radical or accommodating positions and projects in relation to achieving an exit from empire. Development of a policy of full separation on the release or the releasing of any of its dependent parts were not an attribute of empire, even when formally conceded. Institutional legacies are left not perceived as any detritus by those who now hold power, but rather as essential aspects of a gifted modernization that is not to be questioned. Following Memi, it is not difficult for the colonized and the colonizer to see their reflection in each other. The insults exchanged in the Civil War demonstrate this with a former comrade now an enemy. It can be seen as the reflection of the colonizer that is lodged in both former comrades, now fighting antagonists, who previously avoided this lodgment in each other by having a shared enemy. A striking feature of those in turn too is their marginalization, be it in terms of their occupation, their language. They are from the edges of the property-owning clericalist society that now defines what is respectable. The gap between the ethos, the discourse of the formal talks, be it from truce to treaty, to surrender of arms, and the daily experience and discourse of those incarcerated seems unbridgeable. The diary entries of Joseph Campbell or of Sean Okota show this. They reveal a resentment at the recollected absence of formal military leadership, which was a source of failure. This recollection will be, in time, be countered by later texts, which offer a heroic version of events, which are not recalled in any similar way or represented by those incarcerated. This experience of 1923-24 will not be followed by any reaching out effort at inclusion of the broken, the losers. The processing of the later pension applications is humiliating. We get a minimalism that is forced on applicants by the bureaucratic structure of the application process, one which excludes any full narrative of events. That bureaucratic ritualism is there in the questions, the applications will, until the intervention of a concerned senior civil servant, be conducted as a box-ticking exercise. Understated then in the history too, perhaps, is the reference by all the applicants to the poverty that the applicants themselves are experiencing. The role of women in the independence struggle, far from being recognized, is revelatory of a misogyny which is exposed not only in the treatment of pension applications, but in the interpretation, as we have heard, of the revolutionary women's speeches and their vote against the treaty. One might reasonably speculate, indeed, if that is not an explanatory factor in the long delay on according rights to women, including within the context of the Constitution. Is there any evidence of a transcending vision, such as that allowed in the democratic program of the first thought? The vision that predominates is for the stability 
that is necessary for property ownership, acquiescence in clerical control, respectability in the person, the family, the community. Constitutions frequently come out of revolutions, and accordingly they tend to deal not just with the relatively prosaic matters of government organisation, but they have often too attempted to encompass a people's spirit and values, a sense of the nation and of its citizens, as well as settling out the fundamental principles which were to govern the state's laws and institutions. An alternative view, that of such as Sartori, is that brevity in constitutions achieves certainty in an easier way. The democratic programme of the first thought had a visionary character. However, as enacted in 1922, the constitution of the Irish Free State was dictated in form and content by the requirements of the Anglo-Irish Treaty that had been negotiated between the British government and Irish leaders in 1921. Sersothairn consisted of 83 separate articles, totaling 7,600 words. The drafting committee had to consider the inclusion of economic and social rights in the Irish constitution. American labor lawyer Clemens James France, who assisted in the constitution's drafting, proposed, for example, provisions to ensure state control of natural resources, and further proposed that the state would capture the unearned increment arising from land value increases, thereby impeding speculation in land and promoting investment in industrial development. Then too, during the parliamentary debates on the Constitution, Labour TDs Tom Johnson and T.J. O'Connell proposed the inclusion of modest welfare measures as well as provisions to protect children's rights. These proposals met with opposition. UCD Professor of Economics George O'Brien as well as others, including Archbishop John Harty of Cashel, both questioned the social provisions, economic and political viability, stating that such provisions carried the potential to alienate conservative landowning supporters of the treaty. Agitation by the landless across Europe and their seeking of the overthrow of authoritarian structures, their many expressions of emancipatory possibilities, were known to each other, by actionists across Europe and beyond. The church was already directing labels of Bolshevism at the labor and trade union movement. Tom Johnson's or labor's condemnation of non-judicial executions brought, by the way, not any thanks, but death threats from Liam Lynch on behalf of anti-treatyites. Issues of land remained omnipresent. The Land Commission continued to redistribute farmland in most of Ireland with untenanted land subject to compulsory purchase orders, lands which were normally to be divided out to local landless families, but in the execution this was applied unevenly across the state with an emerging movement from IRA networks claiming that they who had driven out landlords were being ignored. As to the 1922 constitution itself, British law officers operating under Lloyd George's government had further objected to what they called the Soviet character of the Constitution's Declaration of Economic Sovereignty. Ultimately, in what can only be interpreted as a significant missed opportunity with lasting and far-reaching consequences in Irish society for decades to come, but in so many senses unsurprising, the provisional government dropped the offending provisions. As to social policy, then the 1922 Constitution was limited to two programmatic declarations only, 
one specifying a pre-existing right to elementary education, Article 10, and the other providing for the possibility of state ownership of national resources, Article 11. It is important, too, in our decades of commemorations to realise that while there has been a reluctance in the early days of the state to put the events of this period through a formal commemorative lens in the fullest sense of recovering all of the pain, the violence, avoidable and unavoidable. The experience was real and damaging. It stayed on in the lives of those impacted. Their pain was passed on in many cases, generating consequential pain suffered frequently in silence. That silence would be contradicted by those who addressed their experience in a secondary way, in fiction, yes, but really not at that much of a distance. And then I believe that Shiva Aiken's work, Spiritual Wounds, Trauma, Testament in the Irish Civil War, more than adequately disposes of the overgeneralized suggestion that silence on the Civil War was general. Her work, be it on the fiction, biography, or stories of the decades that follow the Civil War, gives further strength to my own long-held belief that there are just so many instances where literature gives us the lived and sensory experience than a narrowed theoretical model in the social sciences or indeed the historiography has allowed. Her critique, for example, of the work of Annie and P. Smithson, including the career of how the walk of a queen was received, is an example of this. So much of what was written was an indirect attempt to recover, imagine, compensate, perhaps, or, or even transact what was experienced, but given the social milieu, had better be left unsaid. It was not only among the landless or the unemployed or ex-internees that division would be sown, opportunities for solidarity lost. In cities like Belfast, where one of the positive consequences of the industrial legacy was a strong working class culture, that had within it a trade union militancy that sought to prevent and reduce sectarian action against fellow workers. However, that working class culture too would come to be divided and significant parts of it captured by bigotry with appalling consequences for the minority and indeed a bigotry that would be a poison transmitted, resurrected, but now thankfully being rejected. In the South, an authoritarian version of religion was claiming obedience in matters not only of the spirit, but of the body and life itself, and having it conceded to it influence and hegemony in many of the institutions of the state. The appalling 1930s would be indeed a carnival of reaction, small-mindedness, repression, and abuse. The authoritarian abuses not in South, were moving the people ever further away from each other and their possibilities. The shell of each of the authoritarian systems was hardening, seeming impermeable. Change has come, if too slowly, too late for many. We must welcome and sustain those cracks that have let in the light, that have led to communities beginning to see and understand the incubus for violence which these authoritarianisms constitute. We are ceasing to see the necessity for abuse, abuses to be directed at each other. We are beginning to appreciate the need and satisfaction and joy that comes from narrative hospitality and decency and discourse. All of that is precious. It is what offers hope. Garamila Mahaki, thank you.
Altron Goromakov, can I now open this to the, uh, the audience who are here with us in the Hyde Room in Oris and Uchtaron. Brendan O'Leary, as the key speaker, um, what did Lloyd George give us when he gave, when he gave us partition? Uh, I mean, we paid a heavy price in one way, but an inevitable price, and it could have been the least deadly alternative. It wasn't necessary. Isn't that also true, that a civil war could have happened in 1920-21? I don't agree with the thesis of the inevitability of partition. Partition was a choice. But I do think that uh, the complacency of a judgment in 1966 comes immediately to mind. A.J.P. Taylor, a famous English historian, he wrote, Lloyd George solved the Irish question in 1921, unquote. Now at that time, there's a, a functioning independent Irish Republic. There's no violence in the North. Um, it looks as if Lloyd George has achieved stability. What Lloyd George achieved was what the liberal imperialist always wanted. They wanted the Irish question out of British politics. But he only succeeded in achieving that until 1966-67. Thereafter, the story is bleaker. Uh, I think that um, partition was not inevitable. Uh, you have a clash of mandates in 1918. Clearly, the conservatives and liberal imperialists win that election in Great Britain with a mandate for um, some special uh, arrangement for Ulster. But quite clearly, on the other side, there's a mandate for independence, perhaps a debate about the scale of independence. So I think had there been um, a greater degree of reasonableness among the conservatives in particular, it would have been possible to have had a home rule inside uh, home rule solution, with the Irish Free State having the maximum autonomy of a, of a dominion like Canada, with uh, something like Northern Ireland inside it having devolved structures. That was actually negotiated in the treaty, but of course with the proviso that uh, Northern Unionists could opt out of it. So but I don't George accept- George wanted a quick fix, didn't he? he and he was well, a fixer. He was a, a superb fixer who always gave each side the impression that he agreed with them and was acting on their behalf. Um, I don't know what it would, would have been like to have encountered such a person. He probably uh, would have struck you as far more honest than the, cu the current British Prime Minister, but a similar ability to tell each audience what, what they thought, what he thought they wanted to hear. And he got the border too far south. I mean, he, there was a boundary commission anyway, but the border was, if you look at the necklace of constituencies still, where the nationalists win the seats in South Down, right along the border, contiguous to the border, are there largely and have been over, over the century nationalist seats. Well, the, the border, um, there's, a, there's an unresolved question in the historiography. Lloyd George offers a boundary commission. Clearly, the Irish nationalist negotiators should have insisted on plebiscites, on popular preferences being decisive. That was happening elsewhere in Europe um, as a result of the Versailles Conference. So it was a perfectly feasible model. Um, and I think the, this, the slight change in the wording of what became Article 12 of the treaty, allowing other factors to shape the boundary, then became an excuse for not allowing popular preferences to prevail anywhere in boundary determination. So that's again a, a possibly a lost opportunity and down to poor Irish negotiating uh, on that particular question. Theresa Reedy, um, 
given that the Northern, that the Ulster Unionists felt besieged, and they then, then did have a two-to-one majority, which was built in deliberately, um, wasn't it, in one way, politicians seek power? So they were, it was almost the least democratic democracy. It had all the trappings, and then it had, the, it had Stormont as, as a vanity building in one sense, arguably. Um, there are no surprises in what happened, really, are there? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think the choice to move away from PRSTV and, and offer a majoritarian system was done deliberately to engineer the outcomes that actually happened. And I think when you combine that with the kind of abuse of electoral laws, it, it really amplified the kinds of outcomes that were inevitable, if you want, because of the choice of the electoral system. So the electoral system was always going to do that, um, but it was copper fastened in many ways with some of the other changes that, that were built, uh, built in around it. I think it's interesting that you, you do get a majoritarian style politics also um, in, in the Republic. But PRSTV is a much more flexible and adaptable electoral system funneling votes. And over time, you get a very different kind of politics. As society changes, PRSTV gives very different kinds of outcomes. But the majoritarian system is, is more inflexible, and, and it gave exactly the kind of outcomes in perpetuity that it was intended to do. Yes, Brendan, yeah? One, one comment on, uh, on this theme. Churchill had a moment of opportunity when the unionists chose to abolish STVPR in the course of 1922. At this juncture, they wanted to abolish it because they wanted to restructure local governments so it would look as if the border was legitimate. So he pauses for about six months before giving the go-ahead. So that was a strategic choice by a British politician at a key moment. They could have prevented the modification of the electoral rule in those circumstances. That probably wouldn't have stopped some degree of gerrymandering, but it would have controlled the degree of exclusion of other voices from politics. So once that precedent is given in 22, it's more difficult then to resist the transformation of the, what, what became the Stormont Parliament. Yeah. Henry Patterson, what's your opinion on all of this? And wasn't there always a problem for those on the left? Just they would show your flag would be the, the heckle, heckle from the audience at any of course, parliamentary yeah. meeting or election meeting. Of course. Um, the, this, whole, this whole issue of the balance between what British statesmen, British cabinets yeah. do about Ireland and the internal regional balance of political and social forces within the broader Protestant unions communities it's, it's, I think myself and Brendan will differ on this because fundamentally I think the, if you look at what happened uh, within the British cabinet when you get the ceasefire in 1921 and the beginning of negotiations between the British state and the leadership of Sinn Féin, the immediate pressure of Lloyd George on Craig is to go in to some form of dominion home rule in the greater imperial interest. But Craig isn't interested in the greater imperial interest. He's, he's interested in maintaining the power that he's established um, with British assistance, 
but fundamentally on the basis of that class alliance which is built up really from the 1880s when these issues first, first, first emerged. And I mean, the problem for, for people on, on, the, on the left in the shipyards then or in, in other places of work after it, during, during the um, history of the Northern Ireland State, it varies from period to period. Um, there's a big upsurge of support during the war again in the, in, the, in the end of the 1950s. So it depends on the broader conjuncture. I agree with Brendan when these other issues to do with the whether or not we're talking about in 68, and I remember 68 well being involved in these things, whether we're talking about reform of the Northern Ireland state, which we ultra-left people in student organizations dismissed as not enough, we thought it would open up a broader transformation of bo both states. Um, how naive we were, how naive. I should have known better because this is, these are my people. The people on the picket lines against our marches were people like my aunt and uncle, cousins, people like that. But basically, partly, I think, because if you went to a state grammar school like I did, the only Irish history I knew before I went to Queen's in 66 was six weeks on Grattan's Parliament and the Irish Volunteers. So in a way I was easy meat for somebody like Michael Farrell and Michael Farrell's view of the world, which I, I shared for so you at were least in the six months. You were in the people's <laughs> democracy then, were you? I, I was in people's democracy, yeah, 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 yeah. I was, yeah, the ultra- The original uh, PDs, by oh, the way. Oh, the ultra, yeah. ultra yeah. left. People's ultra democracy, left. there was a time when, Lindsay, What's your opinion of the, the road then, the voices of women in all of this, because uh, that you brought out in your own paper, admittedly about the South and mm -hmm. pensions mm -hmm. and all that. The, the, their voices were really ignored for so long, weren't mm -hmm. they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of complex because it's so, class is so important as to which female voices you were going to hear anyway. I think that the, the biggest loss in a sense was were all those lived experiences and what they, what kind of a state might have been shaped had they had you know, that any space for those for those experiences to have been heard. Um, so, and also, I think what I'm interested, I suppose, is, is the way on a day-to-day -day basis a lack of of representation for women and broader experiences impacted on people's, you know, whether or not you're going to get a pension, whether or not you're going to have to complete a pregnancy that for you is is, is difficult to do, or whether or not you're you're going to end up in an institution or or have a legal an illegal uh, adoption. So there's sort of for me they're all connected and. We tend to write a history that puts that as chapter nine, but if, I think it's fundamental actually to the way in which control and, and power was meted out in the state and the, and the kind of the, the political dispensation is really important to that. President, you again mentioned, as you have at earlier Mocknavs, the importance of, of literature and the voice in fiction to hear some of the, the voices we haven't heard from the historians. Would you like to expand on that? I think when I referred to it previously, it was in the context of immigration, I remember, is that if you want to get the feel and, and experience of immigration in its many different forms, you'll find it in Irish literature. I taught the very first courses in the sociology of migration. Migration wasn't actually part of the curriculum for until quite late in, uh, into the 1970s. In relation to, the, to this, I think the, the topic we're discussing in this Mogna 5, 
I think that there is, I have a problem, and that is that I, I, I sense a, a, a post hoc hero, heroiz, heroism in some of the accounts that are best known. I'm thinking of people, that I have to be careful, but not really, but the point about it is, when I look at Ernie O'Malley's work and I look at Pedro O'Donnell's, uh, the kids flew up and, and all of these, I have a feeling that what it has for me is, is a heroism that was invented after. What I'm very interested in, and why I w went for the diary in many ways, is that it's about food, it's about, it's, it's about people being pushed. And I have to say, it was very difficult getting the information. We don't know how many people were pushed into any one of these huts. Uh, one uh, descendant of one person mentions to me that it was the person who arrived first, went nearest the window, and you just kept pushing people in. And there were up to 18 people in any hut at any time. There was a very important part as well, and that is, is that while the hunger strike was on, uh, the church has said that people were not to get, uh, uh, the sacraments were not to be administered to them. And there's a very moving part in it where a young man from Ballyfermid is very, very, very ill. The priest comes after four and a half hours and he says there's only three of us and there's three and a half thousand of you to be looked after. And then the others want to know what is he said to the young man and things like that. They say, told him, well, we're not supposed to be giving, we're not supposed to be dealing with people like you while this is going on. And I, 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 I do think that, I think that there's a, there's, there was a level reached that was very low in relation to the treatment of the people. I was in a, the difficulty I had, I said, it is known in the records, from my father's records and that, that why should, why, I, I, didn't want, I didn't want to ignore it. But I, I'm interested myself in how these, when, when, when the people come out of the camp and, uh, and places have changed. The estates are undivided. My father's name would be handed in to the police and nobody would speak to him after second mass. So the point is, people actually are going to to, to mass, uh, and they're uh, and but they've all they've got their land and they want more, and that that raises other uh, issues. It would be vital in the future, may I say, uh, for uh, the land commission records. They are just so important in relation to our understanding uh, social history, as to how how it works and. It, they really, it would be one of the best gestures, in my view, of whoever is, in, is taking the decision uh, in this period to say that, to announce that the Land Commission records were going to be made available for research. Yeah, because they are very rich in detail, aren't they? Extraordinarily yes, and, uh, rich. Yes, and yeah. the, the argument that it's too difficult doesn't stand up because the portion of them dealing with Northern Ireland has already been transferred and is available. And they're on public record. The yeah, and they are on public record. Public record of Northern Ireland are making them available. Do we have a contributor, perhaps? Yes. Hello. My name is Martin O'Halloran, and I'd like to address a question to the President. In his address, he gave a, a lot of detail on the land question in Ireland, and I feel that the land question in Ireland is really told and captured in the eight and a half million records of the Irish Land Commission, which is a closed archive in Port Leash. In the Erectus debates in 1989 on the Land Commission Dissolution Bill, an undertaking was given by government which has yet to be honoured to ensure that those, uh, that rich archive is rendered available to scholars and, and the you've public. you've published something on this already, haven't yes, you? Yes, I, I have. Limited access to some of the records. Yes, I had limited access, so I have direct uh, visibility of the wealth and the richness of that archive. Yes. History, 
geography, sociology, economics, genealogy, and it goes on. It's like um, Lindsay described, it's not a single, uh, single simple archive. It's a very complex archive, comprehensively covering all aspects of life in Ireland. I suppose really my question to the President, would he like to see the government's commitment of 1989 honoured? And would the centenary of the enactment of the 1923 Land Act on the 8th of August 1923, which is just a little bit over a year away, be the appropriate event to mark the deadline, yes, the yeah, deadline yeah. to ensure that this is honoured and that some progress is achieved. Yeah, President. Yes, I completely agree, and I think the choice of date and the centenary of the 1923 Land Act would be perfect, and it would be a very significant, substantial. Uh, contribution uh, towards towards uh, to commemoration, and you're right. It's only when one looks, for example, at the Limerick Rural Survey later, and that, and you look at the that, as I said to these young farmers, when they're wondering, saying that even labourers are better off than because you have only have one person inheriting, and in relation to women, you have that you have the category in the census relative statistic. Uh, the idea, and when I looked at this a long time ago when I was doing sociology, what they were left is a room in the house, a seat in the car to mass. Uh, was in the, when you look at wills dealing with the period where you've only one inheriting, that this is, as I, I wrote somewhere else as well, what you had was that assurance of uh, a room in the house and a seat in the car to mass and your high Nelly bicycle. That was women in Ireland. Yeah. Can I ask some of the younger students here is there anything, I'm sure there has to be a fair bit, that unless they would be very distinguished young students if they knew all that they learnt in the last <laughs> two or three hours. Uh, what have you, what's been the most interesting new idea that you've come across? Um, my main take from Mach number 100 is, of course, the importance of self-reflection. And as Professor Lindsay um, spoke about how women were viewed during the Civil War in the 20th century, um, what really resonated with me was the roles in which women were expected to play as homemakers and if they went against this role they were shunned by society. Also the roles that women played in Ireland's fight for independence really had a huge impact on me and I find the fact that they were expected to turn home to, as homemakers um, even though they had such an impact on Ireland's fight for independence I find hard to believe and how their experiences were not heard. It also allowed me to reflect on how much our society has changed since then in terms of how women are viewed um, in society and how women are viewed um, all around the world. Thank you. Anybody, anybody else from the younger students there? Yes. Sorry, just stand where you are. Yeah, yeah, just. Um, I'm Lily Dwyer, and I think the most important thing that I've taken away today is the electoral systems and their effect on kind of how our country works and how po the politics in Ireland work. Um, I think it was really interesting to hear about proportional systems and how they created more representation and about how disproportionality decreases with certain systems. Um, and I think that especially among our age group, it's important for us to be able to have an understanding of that not just knowing about it, but actually being able to understand it and kind of take it in and use it to kind of form our own opinions rather than just going by what's in our books or what we hear other people say. Right. Thank, Thank you for both of those. Um, Lindsay, do you want to comment on that? 
Well, just when I when I when I hear their feedback, I just think the future is safe. Sorry, but you both so articulate and and you really just took such great great points from the papers, and it's fantastic. It's just fantastic. That's all. Sorry, yeah. I was just and so the importance, of course, of them. history at second level, it's, yeah. and to all levels in, in our schools is important, isn't it? Mm. Is Brendan? Yes, I'd like to make two comments on uh, proportional representation since you've given an opportunity. Um, Teresa gave a very good and accurate exposition. I think that the term first past the post is complete propaganda. It implies there's a fixed post which the horses have to race by and the horse that gets past the post first wins. It sounds fair. That's an absolutely inaccurate description of the system because the winner could have 2% of the vote, they could have 98% of the vote. It's the winner who takes all. There's no fixed post. So the correct way to describe the system, in my view, is winner takes all. And that describes the mentality as well. Winner takes all of available power. Point one. Point two, the South can learn from the North. The, uh, the, the North learned from the South that it was better to have proportional representation. It took a hard learning, a civil war. But we can now learn from the North if we're Southerners. In the North, they have uniform district magnitude. You heard Teresa describe that. So each constituency returns the same number of people. That means there's no favor shown to the larger parties. Here in the South, there are uh, still plenty of districts with only three candidates elected. And that's unjust, improper, disproportional. So any future Irish Electoral Commission has to have uniform district magnitude as its first priority. But Thank it, you for it's giving very us fond the of opportunity. Ba- it's very fond of county boundaries as well, the Irish electoral so system, sir, county because of loyalty to counties. and ca- County boundaries are colonial jurisdictions, which this state need not respect, except in GAA. Yeah, well, the, well it was the GAA which popularized them, indeed. And, <laughs> They have been a major obstruction to proper planning, our regional planning, our meaningful participatory planning. Yeah, but they're in the Irish mind. They'll be very hard to dislodge. They're there. True. They're part of the furniture True. as I think, well. I yeah. think we could certainly increase the district magnitude yes, uh, yeah. while still respecting the psychological attachment yes. that people have to yeah. uh, county yes. boundaries. So how about, uh, finally, uh, Henry Patterson, before going to Machnath 6, which I do want to ask the President about how, what shape that will be, but what, what about the way the centenary has been marked? You are part of the advisory committee um, in Northern Ireland about the centenary of Northern Ireland itself. How, how has that panned out, in your view? Well, it's two aspects. The committee itself, pretty wide range of viewpoints, on on the formation of the state, the behaviour of the state. But we work well together. I think we achieve various things that we achieved. I think the most most important probably is to persuade pressure on both the NIO and the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland to release files on the personnel files on the B-Specials, tens of thousands of Protestants who joined this organization uh, from uh, 1920 onwards. And these files, when we started, these files weren't going to be released for decades, perhaps even longer. 
and so we've got they're all going to be released. This will be sensitive files too. Yeah, right, sensitive for some people, files. Yes. Sensitive files. So that's, that's um, we produced a book, which a centenary book, which has got some really good essays. Some of the I mentioned Connell Parr. Yes. Connell Parr's great book on basically a Protestant working class imagination as Thank manifest you. in various uh, playwrights Excellent. from the twenties through uh, until uh, until today. Uh, he's got a great piece, in it, and there are a lot of young scholars. And it's the most recent research in that book. Um, the broader, pro um, it's been pretty predictable, low key, but low key. And there's been a lot of quite interesting stuff going on in local, local communities. So we've done a lot of. Uh, Love of place is a very important uh, matter, isn't it? Yeah, and, and things work out very differently. It yeah, was, yeah. I think John White pointed out. It's a small place, but the differences between like where I was brought up, North Down, and um, Straban, Sion Mills, these border areas. I, mean, I didn't understand them. <laughs> so I mean, things like that, um, and that ca that came out in the way the commemoration was dealt with. And so that grassroots level. So there's a sort of mixture. And before going to the president on Machnov Six, anybody in the audience want to talk about the phenomenon of Machnov itself and whether okay. how useful they found it or otherwise? Yes. Yeah. Your name is. Uh, my name is Deirdre Machnovuna, uh, and the I'm History here. Teachers Association as well, aren't you? History yes, Teachers. Yes. Uh, in yeah. fact, I'm here uh, with my colleagues from the History Teachers Association of Ireland, um, and I would first of all just like to to acknowledge the, uh, the series of reflections and of Machnav that have been going on during this decade of centenaries. And I'd like also, if I may, just to remind ourselves that um, while it's a joy to look at the, the senior girls here uh, from Mokris who have chosen to study history at senior level, there was an incredible irony at the launch of the decade of centenaries back in 2011-2012, because that same time, the framework document in education was also launched, which was proposing that history become uh, an optional subject at, uh, at secondary level. Now, we in the History Teachers Association have been involved for many years in trying to retain history as a core subject within the curriculum. Uh, and it was a battle. Uh, and as I say, we were just so aware of the irony that on the one hand, here is the decade where we are commemorating uh, the great and, and complex history of the foundation of the state and at the same time the Minister for Education at that time wanted to marginalise history. We then fast forward and we've travelled this journey with you Professor uh, through the, the decade and we also want to acknowledge your championing the cause of history and the importance of history in education and it was a great day back in October the 1st of October 2019, where the Minister for Education announced formally that history was now to be given a special position or privilege within the core curriculum. So, you know, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, we've had a lot of people on our side, including your good self, Mr. President. But uh, I think it should be uh, acknowledged that it's a, it's a great, great time to be a history teacher. Uh, and also to be a student, because every student in this country, up to junior sort level now, 
would be given the opportunity to learn their history, which was fragile uh, for a, a time being. Um, so it's been a very, very interesting journey, Don. I'd, I'd like uh, that acknowledged as part of the Mockna series as well. Yeah. Thank you very much, yes. Pre President. Yeah. I, I totally agree that it was very important uh, that, that what would have been a very bad decision was reversed. And hopefully we don't see it again. Uh, I, it's a very good time for, for to be studying history, but it's a good time to be reading history. The quality of what is available now is so wide-ranging. I do want to say the question about about uh, about how it, the commemoration is being done. There's a huge difference between what Markov is attempting to do, this is, and and what I call eventing. It is simply very important uh, to deal with hi histories substantively as best we can by introducing new material and new evidence. But it has to have the ring of authenticity. But what's entirely false, it seems to me, is to take contemporary expressions of the state and start offering these as if you could have a standard version in which you have the same event for just about everything that ever happened. It is very important that there be a ring of authenticity in it. So when one is speaking about women in different circumstances, the people can feel that this material is being taken seriously in the same way. That's why I put in the prison period, because you have to touch it. But the idea that you could have some kind of ritualistic, contemporary expression of the stage in any of its form, uh, as that would, that would be a substitute for this. It is what it is. It's a substitute, and it's a very inadequate substitute. It has to be. There's nothing more encouraging than to be inviting the citizens. It's the citizens reflecting on what went before. It isn't only the case of the state making representation. And when the state does it, it's a very difficult thing to have my sympathy, because the history of which I will be dealing with again isn't good in relation to that. Sometimes they have decided to solve their problem by silence. Sometimes they have decided by totally inappropriate manifestations. Uh, and other times by simply just simply saying you just have the one formula and you just roll it out for just any aspect of our history. That just isn't, it won't do anymore. And I think that not just young people uh, deserve better. We all do. And Machnov 6... The final Moknov will be? Moknov 6 uh, will be recorded. On the seventh, it will be. Re, re, I must be very accurate myself now about this. It will be recorded on Thursday, the 10th of November. It will be broadcast and available on the RT player on Thursday, the 17th of November. It will be titled Acts of Commemoration, Pride, Pain, and Perspective. And what it's going to be looking at is how reflection has been made across the different seminars we've had in relation to the how the personal and the public has been handled, what impulses and imperatives have been at play in each case of different versions we've heard, and who decides what to commemorate, and how, and in what form, and how can we do it best, and how can we do it in a way that is pluralist and inclusive. That's Mognovsik is a look back and also dealing with as well, perhaps you might think and say as well, is that uh, uh, how we can deal properly with the, the, the past that leaves us open to the present and uh, enabled in relation to different models of the future. Yeah. And that too will eventually then be published in book form as well and in ebook yes. form as the first three Mognovs have, president.ie 
Uh, if you want to source that ebook, it is free. Yeah. My thank it remains for me to thank our audience here and to also thank, thank Theresa Reedy um, and all our panel, um, Lindsay Erner Byrne and uh, Henry Patterson, and of course to Brendan O'Leary, who is our key speaker uh, for his very distinguished paper and his continuing efforts, and also to President Higgins for the initiative of MACNIF and for hosting us here in the Hyde Room in Orison of Thron. And thank you also for watching wherever you are, anywhere in the world, to this event. Thank you indeed.